911 emergency. Hello. Can you send someone over here right away, please? What's the emergency? My ex-husband just broke in and now he's... Okay, what's his name? O.J. Simpson. Is he the sportscaster Yes, that's right. Has he threatened you? I, I think you know his record. What are you doing there, Nicole? You call 911? Dukakis not only opposes the death penalty, he allowed first-degree murderers to have weekend passes from prison. One was Willie Horton, who murdered a boy in a robbery, stabbing him 19 times. Despite a life sentence, Horton received 10 weekend passes from prison. Horton fled, kidnapped a young couple, stabbing the man and repeatedly raping his girlfriend. Repeatedly raping his girlfriend. The newly released 911 police emergency tapes that appear to portray a chilling side of O.J. Simpson's personality have law enforcement taking a closer look at how domestic violence cases are handled. 26-year-old Victoria Herring cried as she told me how her husband beat her Monday night because he was jealous. According to a Gwinnett County Police report, Alcaviz Herring had Victoria in a headlock and dragged her to his car. Herring then threatened Victoria, saying she would become another Nicole Simpson and kept telling her he would kill her. That's when all, all of my facial injuries occurred, my broken arm. Victoria was two months pregnant. She lost the baby after the beating. This battered woman sees her life paralleling Nicole Simpson's. Many batterers are probably telling their wives, see, it can happen to you, too. Jack Harper, New Center 5. Tell me what I gotta do to be that guy. Set a price go down, she ever fuck a black guy. Or do anal, or do a gangbang. It's kind of crazy that's all considered the same thing. Well, I guess a lot of niggas do gangbang. And if we run trains, we all in the same gang. Runaway slaves all on a chain gang. Bang, 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 bang. Let's get a female jogger, I shout into the twilight, looking at the middle class thighs pumping past me, cadres of bitches who deserve to die for thinking they're better than me. You ain't better than nobody, bitch. The rock begs my hand to hold it. It says, come on, man. T.W. Pitbull, J.D. and me grab the bitch. Ugly, big-nosed, white bitch, but she's beautiful because she's white. She's beautiful because she's skinny. She's beautiful because she's going to die because her daddy's going to cry, bitch. I bring the rock down on her head. Sounds dull and flat like the time I busted the kitten's head. The blood is real and red. My dick rises. I tear off her bra. Feel her perfect pink breast like Brooke Shields, like the bitches in Playboy shit. I come all over myself. I bring the rock down, the sound has rhythm. Hip-hop ain't gonna stop till your face sees what I see every day. Walls of blood, walls of blood. The five young men were shown, named, and shamed by local politicians outraged by the gang rape allegations. They should be more afraid of us today than of the police. But the alleged victim of a gunpoint sex assault at Osborne Playground now has recanted. Convicted rapist. And these guys risk their lives all the time. Oh! America's most wanted. Help save Elizabeth. Okay, let's go. Let me tell you something, bro. You're in big, big trouble. Convicted rapist. Mr. Gordon Porter cannot get those 16 years back. But based upon my review of the motions and the representations of counsel, this court grants. Defendant's motion. <laughs> they take his conviction, and the indictment is hereby dismissed. Thank you, Judge. That concludes the proceedings.
Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you, Judge. I couldn't help but cry. The relief that a district attorney of that magnitude would, would, would side with me concerning this case is it's, it's, it's so profound. I did everything I could do to always show people that, hey, I'm never that type of guy. I never could be that type of guy. A lot of doors been slammed in my face for jobs. She wanted children. I wouldn't bring children in the world because of this. And now we're past the age we can't have children. It ruined his life. His life has been ruined over this, you know, not just incarceration, but wrongfully being labeled a sex offender. These are things that he will never get back. An astonishingly simple case of injustice. One question during trial. Do you remember seeing the accuser in court? Yes. Um, they, she got on the stand, and I remember the question was asked, do you see the perpetrator in the room that did this crime to you? And she said, yes, that black man right there. And I looked around, and I said, I'm the only black man in the courtroom. Matter of fact, I'm the only black person in the whole courtroom. Anthony Broadwater. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade. The black O.J. Simpson in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Monday, February 7, 2022. So I have been told before we get started, definitely for this program, two things. Number one, Neely Fuller Jr. He says regularly, first time last time make sure before when you first meet or seeing each other and oh he's cool and oh she's cute and blah 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 hey no touching this is done we are not doing that nobody is putting hands we can have disagreements talk about that in advance has this has this been a problem with you before you can talk about all of that up front first time last time Number two, what does that moron say? Regular, he's been saying it for some years now. He says it at the end of the programs. He says, how does it go? He says, sobriety would be best. Our guest for, man, our guest for today's program. I've said for years, chronologically, if you listen to the cows in the order of the programs in terms of their release, that's the best way you'll learn a lot. So if you can hang tight for one week, today's broadcast will fit beautifully with the program for one week from today when our guest will be Kyla Schuler. She is the author of The Trouble with White Women. The first paragraph in the foreword to that book, it says the biggest stumbling block in black women's journey to fly the flag of feminism has been white women. Somewhere, a white woman is talking about how we all need to be united as women, regardless of race or creed. And somewhere, a black woman is giving that white woman a side eye. Kyla Schuler, in fact, that'll be on February 14. We'll be talking about her book, The Trouble with White Women. Anywho, uh, 
our guest for today's program, I was thinking like, man, what is our record? We've been here almost 13 years. What is our record on women's studies in terms of programs? And I said, let's see. So we've had uh, Danielle McGuire. She was with us to talk about her book at the dark end of the street, black women, rape and resistance, a new history of the civil rights movement from Rosa Parks to the rise of black power. Uh, we had Glenda Elizabeth Gilmore. She talked about gender and Jim Crow women and the politics of white supremacy in North Carolina. Uh, we had Catherine Fossil on the program. She talked about her biography, uh, subversive Southerner and Brayton and the struggle for racial justice in the cold war South. Uh, we had Linda Rinquest door, white women rape and the power of race in Virginia. Uh, Andrea Freeman skimmed breastfeeding race and injustice. And last one I'll give, this is not like exhausted, just some of the books that came to mind specifically for the topic for today's broadcast, Dorothy Roberts, killing the black body, race, reproduction, and the meaning of Liberty. Not quite exemplary, but at least like a C minus D plus, right? Our record women's studies, not exhaustive, just some of the content relative to today's broadcast. And I would add book club selection that we just completed. That's how we got here today. Kind of giving some context. We read Alice Siebold's Lucky. I don't have enough time to explain the whole introduction. Bill Cosby, Willie Horton, America's Most Wanted. Maybe we'll get into some of that detail as we go through the book. Uh, but Lucky specifically is how we got here. Alice Siebold's memoir, which describes her 1981 rape. She is a white woman. She was allegedly raped by a black male. Turns out Anthony Broadwater, that black male convicted, serves 16 years, ended up being a registered sex offender. And then it takes 40 years to find out. Whoops exonerated junk science racism all this other you know whatever you want to call it miscarriage colossal miscarriage of justice uh no sorry exoneration uh you heard him uh at the end as we were reading this memoir of alice siebold literally days after the exoneration one of our listeners said man this reminds me so much of the book, The Feminist War on Crime, The Unexpected Role of Women's Liberation in Mass Incarceration. I said, wow, that would be great. Let's see if we could get her on the program to further discuss. And wow, once you read the book. So, I mean, oh, I thought of Alice Siebold, Lucky, Anthony Broadwater on about every other page, every <laughs> registered sex offender, all of it, uh, this vengeance, we're going to be punitive and punishing individuals for sex crimes. Wow. So much amazing information. Super excited that we could have her <clears throat> hang out with us on the broadcast. Uh, the author uh, of the said scholarship that I've been reading and excited to chat about joining us live, uh, Professor Aya Gruber. Uh, Professor Gruber, are you with us, ma'am? It's so great to be here, and let me say that I would like to give you an A-plus on your um, critical feminist lineup that you've had. Hey, hey, I was willing to take a C, but wow, right on. And Kyla Schuler, maybe next week we'll get bumped up to a C-plus, B-minus maybe uh, by next week, The Trouble with White Women. Um, 
Thank you so much for hanging out with us uh, this evening uh, to discuss your, your phenomenal scholarship. Uh, some, some of our listeners already know they informed me. Uh, for folks who have not done the reading yet, uh, anything that you would like to tell them about who you are and the great work that you do? Sure, I do. I, I first want to say that, you know, one, one thing I noticed in um, in your introduction was that you mentioned Anthony Broadwater before Alice Siebold. And, and I think that's really important because even if you look up the most sympathetic articles um, to Anthony Broadwater, the, the headlines are always Alice Siebold, um, you know, rapist was released and just don't say his name or man accused by Alex, uh, by Alice Siebold was finally released. And that to me is just like really exemplary of even in the fact that this is his story, that this was his life that was robbed from him. We still have, even among the sympathetic press, like this dehumanization of the accused person by not even naming him, by naming instead the false accuser as the author, you know, the famed author. And then there's this nameless person that has suffered an entire lifetime disappeared because of her. So that, that was just really notable to me. Um, my book. Yeah. I, I think, I think, you know, I would categorize myself as, you know, one of these feminists. And I think I could rightly say I'm a feminist who, um, you know, when I was in law school before I be, became a public defender, I was, you know, really right, rightly, I think, concerned with the racism of policing, prosecution, imprisonment. I had a parent that was actually put in the Japanese internment camps during World War II, so I always had this kind of, like, distrust of the state and its use of detention authority. Um, but at the same time, you know, I had always internalized this notion that to be a good feminist meant that the number one thing on your radar was men's private violence, particularly domestic violence and rape, that those were the most important things, and that the only way to address them was through prosecution and imprisonment. So, like, going into becoming a public defender, I felt this dilemma, like, oh, my gosh, you know, how I'm going to represent these terrible men um, accused of these crimes. And it was, it was interesting because I was more worried about representing a man charged with misdemeanor domestic violence than I was, um, representing somebody charged with murder. Like that fell into my, oh, you know, everybody needs a defense. The system is rigged and we need, we can have like bad evidence and all these different things. But when it came to any crimes against women, I mean, even minor, it was like that carceral instinct kicked in. And when I finally became a public defender, I saw the system up close. You know, I was at a law school. I really looked at the systems that feminists had built to make a better, you know, more progressive, more enlightened criminal prosecution system. And I realized that, you know, it was just more of the same, more of this sort of revolving door that's not helping anybody where you saw, you know, poor people of color, mostly men, mostly black men in the jurisdiction I was in, you know, just going in and out of the system and nobody's really being helped by it. And I saw even women being hurt by it. So after I became an academic, I really wanted to dial down on 
where did this instinct come from that despite everything we know is so horrific about American mass incarceration, you know, well-meaning feminists are still clinging to this idea that the linchpin of justice for women is, you know, really being prosecutorial when it comes to this subset of crimes. So that was kind of the inspiration for the book. Spectacular. We'll try to get through as much detail as we can through the course of uh, the text, give folks some chances to ask questions as well. Uh, for folks who have not seen you, um, are you classified as a white person or non-white person? I, I guess I could be classified as either depending on like who you ask. So, I mean, I am half Japanese, right? Like, so I'm half Asian. Um, I can pass for like many things. <laughs> um, and so, you know, it's interesting. My, my, you know, everybody is rightly, I think, thinking about, you know, the perspective of people who are commenting on these issues, whether, you know, it's called situated knowledge or lived experience. And so I definitely think in terms of being somebody who is vulnerable to, like, the state and being incarcerated, I think, you know, Asian women and white women are probably the least vulnerable. So I would probably be a person who's not very vulnerable to being caged by the state. Um, you know, so I can't write from that perspective of lived experience. That being said, I can write for the perspective of somebody who, although, you know, a, a critical race person from, you know, being very young, um, you know, had had the perspective of being victimized by sexual assault. And even that, like I could say, wasn't really what formulated my opinion of like how carceral feminists should be. It really was just this notion of being a quote unquote good feminist. Um, so I, I mean, I, I speak from that perspective of somebody who really felt dilemma over like, okay, well, if I believe in women's rights, I've got to be really, really tough on rape. And, you know, you've got to just give prosecutors more power. You've got to have these messaging campaigns. You really got to throw people in jail for domestic violence. Like I had just internalized that set of beliefs through, you know, being in college and things like that. And they really were a set of beliefs that it shouldn't have thrown me into dilemma because there's nothing natural about them. It's not natural to look at a problem in the world like gender subordination or violence and just say, let's exact more state violence on people's bodies. It, it's not natural. It's just something that has been so drummed into, you know, women who want to be feminist head, this very particular notion. And it is very, you know, very much a white feminist notion. It's a middle class feminist notion. And it's also the notion that got more, most traction because it aligned with powerful political and neoliberal interests. I mean, it got drummed into my head, too. So I guess I can talk from the perspective of somebody who had been taken in by that logic and and shouldn't have been. Wow. Thank you for the uh, detail in your uh, response, Professor Gruber. Am I pronouncing your name correct? Is it Gruber? Am I saying that right? It's Gruber. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Um, to make sure I'm being accurate, you said you have one Japanese parent and you have one white parent? Yeah. Um, well, he's like Eastern European Jew, but that's white. 
who you, I guess it depends on who you ask, but yeah. So, okay. I mean, you know, um, but yeah, so that's, that's sort of my personal background, um, which, you know, just intersectionally, it brings, it, it brings its own set of issues, but it's certainly not, the, it's certainly not the issue of the deep vulnerability of men of color and particularly black and Latino men in this country to state sanctioned violence. That's, you know, that's a phenomenon that's, that's gendered and raced and um, extremely present. For sure. Uh, I will see if I can get to the text here before I do uh, all of our guests. um, My definition uh, I give, uh, I use the term, racism and the term white supremacy as synonyms. And I use the same definition for both terms. Uh, The definition I use is as follows a global system of people who classify themselves as white and are dedicated to abusing and or subjugating everyone in the known universe whom they classify as not white. Do you think such a system exists? Do you think that definition is accurate? I think that de- uh, definition is accurate, but maybe, um, you know, I would add a couple of things. One is that, you know, I think whiteness is more than just individuals intent to, it's an entire embedded structural system. And so you could really have a white person who says, I don't have a racist bone in my body. Like I love black people. And at the same time, every single choice they make and every single policy they believe in is a legacy of white supremacy, enslavement. So, I mean, I I would say that. And the second thing I would say, it's interesting because I also think that, you know, whiteness, like, yeah, it has to do with morphology and, and maybe, you know, some people's perception, perception of color of skin and all that. But it's also just a status. You can price it. You know, if you're an economist, you can, you can price it, how, how much being included in the concept of whiteness is, whether it's on the page or, you know, again, like visually or just, it, you know, the circles you're allowed to belong to. And sometimes that whiteness can be conferred on people who are technically non-white, right? It's a, it's a fluid function. You know, at, at one point, people from Poland in the United States and Italy were considered non-whites. And now, you know, they're, you know, they're like card-carrying members of these white supremacist, white nationalist groups there in this country. And, you know, you see a similar phenomenon in a way happening with Asians with affirmative action debates and sort of like, you know, crimes against Asians being used as, you know, the fodder for these really carceral policies. You see kind of a a, a whitening of of that ethnic group. So I I just would also say that it's, it's, it's both an intention and it's a construct and it's a history. So there's just many layers to it. Right on, right on. I, ju- I guess my quick response uh, would just be I'm very intentional about system of people who classify as white because so frequently, in my view, one individual's classified as white will do this deliberately 
to deceive and cause confusion. But many victims, non-white people do this just because we're confused. We're still learning. But racism gets discussed as some sort of metaphor in a really ambiguous manner, manner uh, or it will be attributed to previous policies, legacies, things that were done in the past, as opposed to these are things that individuals classified as white are doing right now, just as you said, policies, how they vote, how they invest, all of that is directly related to why we have white supremacy racism in all areas of people activity all over the world, even though they will lie. I love black people. I voted for Obama three times and all the rest of it. That is very, very prominent. And I think a big part of the confusion uh, in in fact, even related, I was, as a black male reading this text, I'm leaving out a, a big chunk of black misandry that happened in the middle of my day that's directly related to the text. I'll see how the time goes. Maybe I'll share. But as a black male reading this text, whew, it was challenging at times for different reasons. But I want you to, to explain for our listeners the full title of the book, The Feminist War on Crime, the unexpected word of the day for the program is unexpected boys and girls listening in unexpected the unexpected role of women's liberation in mass incarceration can you kind of detail the title and and what was what problem you wanted to address and maybe help solve in the writing of this book and with your response can you tell us unexpected what do you mean when you say unexpected So that I'm I'm really glad that you asked that because um, so initially I was just going to call it the feminist war on crime. And where that comes from is, you know, when I did start getting involved as a defender in these courts that were built by feminists, like domestic violence courts and and, you know, in in rape trials where you can't bring your defense because there's these special evidence rules that you know only apply in these trials and and that were championed by by feminists um you know i started like just seeing how people who i thought of as you know having a progressive pro equality stance really contributed to this mass incarceration system that is like, completely racist but also like an outlier in the world both in it's just breath and the inhumanity within prisons and the racial bias. And it just was like, I was like, oh my God, the feminists had their own war on crime through the years. All the energy about, you know, gender equality and women being oppressed went into sort of this, this punishment system that didn't seem to help women much. And frankly, didn't affect the very women who were architects of it, which were mostly privileged white women. So that was a feminist war on crime. And then the, <laughs> and then the publisher said, well, I think we need a little colon after it. And so they suggested it to me. Um, you know, I, I said something like the, I said something like the role, I said to them, the role of women's liberation in mass incarceration. And so then they came back to me and said, well, we want to say the unintentional role. And I said, I'm going to say unintentional. Right. Um, Because a lot of it was intentional, like you were saying, like we can say some of it is system. We can say some of it is legacy. We can say some of it is the tough on crime politicians kind of co-opting the feminist movement and bringing it away from like, 
you know, distributing um, resources to the most vulnerable, marginalized women to these, you know, pro-policing policies. We can say all that, but the fact of the matter is a lot of this from feminists themselves was very intentional and very intentionally racist. And I can give you an example of that in a second. That's actually not in my book. It's in a paper I'm writing now. But so I just wouldn't do it. And they're like, well, you need to say something or else people are just going like, to really not like, 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 like you even less if they're really into Me Too at this moment and Weinstein. And it seems like convictions are a prize for women's rights. And I'm like, okay. So for many people, understanding the role of feminism in the rise of racialized mass incarceration is going to be unexpected, right? Um, you know, for others, it's going to be like, like, yeah, tell us something we don't know. Um, so that was kind of the compromise position was the unexpected. Wow. I'm so glad. So glad you uh, are hanging out with this evening. So glad I got to ask that question. Wow. On so many levels. Before I get to my surprise, um, I'm so grateful when she shared Professor Gruber about the omission of Anthony Broadwater. That is exactly like it is extremely deliberate when I say his name and I try to say it at the beginning of the program. We did the book club. So for two months, when we read Alice Siebold's book, I hashtagged his name. Every time for the title of the program, because I was noticing the same thing, like they're not even talking about this guy. He was a, even if he didn't spend any time in jail. I didn't realize this until I read uh, Professor Gruber's book. If he just had to be a registered sex offender for the last 40 years, that alone would have been a, like, oh, my God, just that alone, not even counting 16 years in prison. And then a uh, whoops. And then we can't even mention your name. You're just some random raping Negro oh, who didn't actually rape anybody who also was a U.S. Marine. But no, you just the Negro who could have or maybe didn't or was falsely identified by Alice Siebold. Like why? And these, as she said, are the sympathetic tellings of Anthony Broadwater. Like, wow. <laughs> Anywho. Yeah, I mean, it's it's amazing. Like, say his name, you know, like, why are you reporting? You know, and, and I get it. Okay, fine. She was 18. She couldn't see. She went along with the prosecutors. Maybe she's not the worst player in this story. But like, it's just so striking to me. It doesn't say false accuser, you know, famous author is a false accuser of Anthony Broadwater, who's finally been released. It's like author Alice Siebold apologize, you know, and it's so it's it's so interesting. Black Miss Andre. Um, but with the titling as well, like. Was this a white person who said uh, who suggested inserting unexpected? This, you know, I don't think so. Like, I haven't looked up the entire editorial board at the press, but I think it it, it was. You know, all people, you know, marketing people, I think they were a different array. But I think, you know, like the the way they explained it is they felt that just saying the feminist war on crime was inflammatory enough. You know, um, and I, I do get it. I do get it because for so many years, the, 
you know, people writing on feminism and criminal law, and especially like my book was supposed to come out at the height of the Harvey Weinstein trial, Me Too, Mm. right? And so here's this book sort of criticizing feminist focus on sexual assault and domestic violence and criminal law as a solution to those things. Um, And so they were expecting it to come out in the middle of, you know, this very, very carceral, very, very sort of feeling good about, you know, tougher criminal laws moment for feminists with Weinstein. And then COVID happened and production was delayed for a year. And the book actually came out right in the midst of the protests uh, about George Floyd's murder and the racism of policing. And so the reception was completely different than what they were anticipating. Um, So they were anticipating the left, left progressives, to just excoriate me for not being pro-women enough. Um, But it came out in a moment where a lot of my critiques about, like, feminist alliance with, you know, actually very racist and sexist um, police officers was having resonance. So I think they were worried for nothing. But the unintentional, it was so interesting to me because that is how in the legal writing and in the, the accountings of how much, you know, women's rights rhetoric and feminism contributed to mass incarceration, it's always kind of like, and I do, I mean, I understand a lot of the early activists, you know, and and there were, there were women of color also in the carceral activism scene. I mean, there's nothing is a monolith, but I I do think in general, like women of color, feminists, um, and sort of like socialist feminists, they were very, very, very against this sort of strange bedfellow of, of police and feminists. But, um, But usually the way to look back on it is to say, oh, you know, feminists really wanted to do the right thing. They were in the right place. They just got co-opted or they just didn't see that it could turn out this way or they just didn't understand the racism of the system. And, you know, that's true of some of the powerful feminist reformers, but a lot of it's like not true, right? They did see the, the, the racism of the system. And I know this because, you know, in my research, you see women of color, victims of domestic violence, the ones who are running shelters, telling them that they think a lot of this has to do with white supremacy and the oppression of marginalized men and the communities. And they're not being any resources for families that are under stress and just a whole bunch of things. There are literally women of color telling the feminist activists, this is what's going on. And they're actually you know, faulting the women of color activists for denying the universality of the women's experience, right? So, so you, you know, now, like, if you say this is white supremacy, supremacy, you know, women of color, you're just giving your men a pass. That's literally what, what they were saying. You're just giving your men a pass. And maybe you should look in inward and just recognize the racism in your in this particular exchange i'm remembering it was a latina you know why don't you recognize the race uh not the races recognize the sexism and the misogyny in latino culture and that was literally white feminist answer at the time to to black feminists and feminists of color they literally were like be quiet because we're trying to get a uh, a national platform here and if you blame other things than men, 
like, you know, than, than men being just bad and these cultures being like bad, we're not going to get it. You know, so it, 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 you know, that's intentional that, you know, that is intentional. You know, the, the example I wanted to use was there's a, the, the most famous anti-rape book that came out in 1976 was Susan Brown Miller's against our will. And it was the book that, you know, that finally was like, you know, rape throughout time has been a tool of male oppression. And it kind of led to this idea of taking rape seriously, which is a good thing. You need to take rape seriously. Um, but interestingly, she spends a not insignificant amount of time kind of justifying the killing of Emmett Till. And, and you're like, what, what is going on here? So, you know, she was talking about the fact that, yes, what, what happened to Emmett Till is terrible, but let's think a little bit more about this whistle, right? And so we now know that the whistle didn't occur, but, you know, back then, that, that was the story. Let's think a little bit more about this whistle from this black teen to this white woman. This whistle, this is what Susan Brown Miller said, was no just little, you know, hubba hubba, small tweet of a hubba hubba. It was no just little thing. This was a black man telling a white woman, I can have you. Right? Child. So this whistle. Yeah, child, exactly. But that's not how she put it. Right? That, that's not how she put it. Right? Like, so this whistle, you know, was, was a big deal precisely because Emmett Till was black and the, the woman, I forget her name, was white. And, and it just and when you go back and read that, it just blows your mind. And, and she draws a direct line between this, you know, hyper, hyperbole from Eldridge Cleaver about raping a white woman being an insurrectionary act. And she's like, you see, you see, you see. So whenever a black man says or does anything uh, sexual, and you know, there's a white woman nearby, that's really a heightened danger situation, precisely because black men are using sexuality as a, as a weapon to sort of vindicate um, their racial equality to whites. And this was a feminist, a very famous, the feminist analysis of the time. And, and it was just plainly racist. Intentionally so. Uh, unfortunately, this comes up over and over and over uh, throughout the history of white feminism, white supremacy, racism. Uh, I'm, I'm skipping ahead a little bit in the text to kind of see some of these same ideas resurface. So this is in your chapter, uh, The Battle Plan. So this is specifically on page uh, 91. You write uh, from 30,000 feet, all tough on crime measures from the last three decades look as if they worked because they coincided with the great crime decline. Most experts, however, agree that incarceration accounted for little, if any, of the decline. Of note, arrests for violent crimes predictably decreased along with the decline in crime rates, although changes in sentencing kept incarceration rates sky high. Domestic violence crime rates similarly decreased, but Owning to feminist reform, domestic violent, domestic violence arrests did not. Today, the studies attempting to substantiate the benefits of carceral domestic violence policies 
and finally answer whether they deter, satisfy victims, and reduce harm, crowd Google Scholar. In the meantime, domestic violence defendants crowd the prisons, males and females. The feminists' arrest and punch arguments took on a troublingly racialized tone in response to Sherman's Milwaukee findings that DV arrests escalated violence in black communities. Sherman calculated that across the board, arrest policies reduced violence against white women at the cost of increasing violence against twice as many black women. Instead of rethinking mandatory arrest, some feminists responded with a claim disturbingly reminiscent of the famous Moynihan Report, uh, retired firefighter in Florida, there you go, on the pathology of black subculture discussed in the previous chapter. Joan Zorza, staff attorney at the National Center on Women and Family Law, responded to Sherman in 1992, stating that the first and most important argument against the Milwaukee study was that the subculture of poor black men, society's failures, made them immune to all but the harshest sanctions. She, in quotes, that a few hours under arrest fails to deter the abusers who are generally considered to be society's failures is hardly surprising. In some subcultures of ghettoized people where imprisonment is all too common, a few hours in jail may be seen as only a minor irritation or even a rite of passage. We do not consider eliminating arrest for other crimes However, because it may not deter a particular individual or class of individuals, the studies may suggest that to deter more batterers, the stakes may need to be, she just said it, sky high, not lower or non-existent. I will stop there. This is on page 92. Professor Gruber, anything to add? Not, what did they say? unexpected uh, yeah so right like a quote like and let me tell you like joan zorza was a big deal in domestic violence reform champion of women celebrated feminists and you know here she is basically saying in the face of systematic studies that mandatory arrest increases violence in the black neighborhood, like it, it increases violence. And there are very theory, theory, various theories as to why, but it has to do a lot with economic marginalization and um, just the effects of jail. And just there, there are many theories as to why, right? But here's incontrovertible evidence that for women of color, for black women who experience violence, arresting the man, um, increases the chance that they're going to be subject to future violence, right? And, <laughs> and here's what the feminist is saying the reason is. Now, with, with zero studying, with, without apparently re reading the studies on, you know, what the causal explanations might be, and there are a lot of sociological and ecological reasons why an arrest might be a very violence-provoking thing to one person but not another person, um, you know, it just depends on, on, on a bunch of factors. But she decided on the one factor. And the one factor is that black men 
in the ghetto are so used to punishment um, that they don't that they don't feel any. Right. And I mean, you can trace this right back to the times of enslavement where this idea that persists and causes all kinds of problems, not only in criminal law, but also in the health um, arena. Basically, that black bodies don't feel pain. And and so, you know, I had to quote that at length. Because, again, you know, if I just said, like, look, I mean, the evidence was there in front of the thing. These are feminists making the argument. Nobody would believe me. They'd say, no, you're just saying that you just want to cast aspersions on feminists. And I wanted to make sure that I didn't, that I was like, look, this is based on what was said at the time, what was known and said. So, you know, every day there's a young feminist come to me and says, okay, I've, I've learned about X crime that I think is a gender crime. And here's my, you know, four-part solution that involves a lot more policing and imprisonment and, and punishment. Um, you know, and I say to them, well, you know, that's kind of like weird that you would want that for our future, you know, as feminists, because we have racialized mass incarceration. And, you know, and, and that kind of thinking kind of led us here. And I always get this, the student saying, no, 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 feminists aren't responsible for mass incarceration. It's not that thing. It, it was a tough on crime politician or it was Reagan or it was everybody else. It was crack. It was Clinton. Right. And so I have to bring forward these debates because, frankly, this idea of having to arrest people for domestic violence really did pave the way of sort of thinking like declining, like a police officer declining to arrest somebody was them shirking their duty. I mean, they declined to arrest for all types of things and still do. Um, but this really did say, you know, like if there's violence, police have to arrest. And they did in all kinds of assaults, including assaults committed by women. Um, and now, you know, there was a 30% rise in women in prison due to, mainly to the reconceiving of violence as something that's always horrible, something you always have to arrest for, including uh, when women perpetrate it. So I have to quote at length because people don't believe me when I say this happened. Context of white supremacy. She walked me right to my quote. This is important. This is a, this is like a twofer uh, here. So on one portion, this is exactly what she talked about in terms of, Oh no, 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 no. You don't just dump this on, uh, Ronald Reagan and Joe Biden and the crime bill and crack and all that. No, 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 no. White women bear a nice chunk of this responsibility, even before all of this, but also with regards to the victim, Anthony Broadwater, when we read lucky, Oh my, the not naming of Anthony Broadwater throughout the book. Number one, she gives him a pseudonym as Gregory Madison, but throughout the book, he's not named. It's just the rapist the rapist the rapist all throughout the book no name nothing total dehumanization so when i got to page 100 alice seabold lucky and alice seabold's lucky sold a million copies was almost made into a movie we would have been watching that this mm -hmm. year perhaps black male rapist for a crime that i suspect <sighs> Man, I have doubts just reading her book. But anyway, so this is on page 100. Next chapter, The Weapon. Uh, Professor Alice Gerber, she writes, The victim image driving the war on crime was very specific. It actively excluded 
the marginalized men and women, often defendants themselves, who disproportionately suffered from crime but viewed the criminal system with a jaundiced eye. Victims instead were innocent women and children, preferably white, who were subjected to men's unspeakable brutality, preferably sexual. Victims were devastated, angry, and vengeful, and they defined themselves by that one bad moment in life. Victims felt oppressed by insufficiently zealous prosecutors, prying defense attorneys, due process protections, and lenient judges. Victims desired and benefited from greater participation in the criminal process and were satisfied with the sole reward of the perpetrators incarceration. Victims also took on an almost deific quality, making the war on crime something of a holy war. The veneration of victims, Minnow writes, reflects an almost religious view of suffering, empowering those who suffer with reverence from others. Bill Clinton's Attorney General Janet Reno, in a speech supporting the Federal Victims' Rights Amendment, called victims but little lower than angels. Decades later, candidate Donald Trump picked up on this theme and featured angel moms, the mothers of children killed by immigrants at his rallies. I just want to, I keep saying Alice Sebold just so that you all can hear a little bit of why I keep saying, this is just one paragraph. She writes in lucky that day, it all got raw. If she calls him Gregory Madison, this is Anthony Broder. If Madison stood next to his friend and played a game of eyes to psych me out, then I would give it right back to him. I was authentic. I had been a virgin, virgin 46 times the word virgin in this book. He had broken my hymen in two places. The OBGYN J. Marion Sims, father of gynecology would testify to the fact I was also a good girl. That phrase in the book nine times. And I knew how to dress and what to say to accentuate that. That night following the grand jury testimony, I called Madison a motherfucker in the privacy of my dorm room while I pounded my pillow and bed with my fists. I swore the kind of blood thirsty revenge no one thought possible coming from a 19 year old co-ed while still in court I thanked the jury I drew on my resources performing placating my performing placating making my family smile as I left the courtroom I felt I had put on the best show of my life I'll stop there. I was going to read the poem where she talks about castrating him and chopping off his balls and slicing out his eyes and all that. But this is a lot shorter and 
much more to the point about the deific victims and the crime bill. Uh, do you have thoughts you'd like to share, Professor Gruber? Yeah, you know, and I haven't read Lucky, but uh, but 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 reading that, I'm gonna, I mean, there's a way to read that where you know it's almost a it's almost like an admission, an admission kind of wrapped up in a in a, a kind of woe is me story. So the admission that's wrapped up in it is that victimhood is completely constructed. It's a performance. It's a placeholder. It's a placeholder for so many things, for racial anxiety, for, you know, vindicating your worth, for understanding women. So I think like one of the points she could have been making is like, why should I have to be a virgin? I had to perform virginity, right? But like, it's, it's ironic because the whole, the whole victim's rights movement and the whole idea of, you know, sort of communing with victims is constructed from the outset. So we could include virgin or, or it cannot include virgin, but it still has parameters. And throughout our American history, these parameters have been that certain people aren't eligible for victimhood, right? Like, so when you think about race, by law or lack of law, like during enslavement, black women couldn't be victims. Right? That was just part of life for them, like rape. Um, and then that sort of inability to be a victim gets inscribed onto black women. Um, and then, you know, in terms of like people who are the perpetrators, it's still much easier, even though that has opened up a little with with me too, it's still much easier for people to see, you know, men of color um, or people they they that look deviant or are poor, you know, as rapists or as offenders um, to bring stereotypes into who they see as um, domestic violence offenders and who they see as good guys, you know. So so all of this is going on, and you know, in, in one way, she's kind of critiquing it. She's just saying like, this is just a performance, but then you're participating in a performance that is driving policy and driving law and driving mass incarceration. So I just think, you know, it's been for many years and there's many, many causal explanations, you know, but really sort of hitting its stride in the 60s where this idea of what crime is, is not like, it's a pathology or it's a disease or any of those were kind of like in for a while, like in the twenties. Um, but it became dividing the world into good and evil, right? And the evil people were monsters and the good people were saints. And so once you do this, like you have no problem then, you know, having these high sentences, watering down due process and all of that. Because people buy the rhetoric, right? That certain people are evil and certain people are good. But this rhetoric always overlaps with programs of oppression, with management of people, with management of areas of, of, of cities, with, with, with where police want to be, who wants the money, right? So from the outset, the logic only works Right. If there's some objective person out there designating who's the evildoer and who's the good, but there's not. Right. It's, this is all like this has always been managed by pre-existing notions 
of who isn't or isn't evil. So like, for example, who is or isn't a rapist. Studies confirm it. History shows it. But the person of black men is constructed throughout history and both intentionally and unintentionally by white women and others as sexually dangerous. And so, you know, this idea that they're just neutral notions, even of like sexual danger and all this, it's not true. This has always been a constructed world. And to sort of like triple down on these notions of like good and bad and, and, and evil and wrongdoing, I mean, like, A, they water down due process, so you end up convicting innocence. But even if the person isn't innocent, you know, we, that, that rhetoric isn't only in horrible, brutal rapes. That rhetoric is, is everywhere. Like, oh, I can't believe this person pickpocketed from me. They must be evil, right? So that rhetoric of dividing the world, and, and it just so happens that evil overlaps with race. Like, that, that's just a coincidence. No, it's not a coincidence. Because this whole way of thinking about criminal law was a product of the era of integration and fears of quote unquote urban black crime. Context of white supremacy. Uh I will get in one more segment from the text and then I'll nab some of the folks who dialed in uh with questions uh for Professor uh Aya Gruber. Uh this is on page one oh seven uh of the text. Uh she writes directly to, to some of the commentary that she just gave us about who. And I mean, hey, <laughs> white people cannot be ignorant about white supremacy, racism. I've said that for almost the full 13 years that we've been on the air. Like if you're classified as white anywhere in the known universe, you already know, like they don't do no knock raids in white areas. They don't come harass and do uh, broken windows policies where we do minor nuisance arrests where white people live. We already know where that's going. We already know who the targets are going to be. Even the children know that. So, I mean, hey, this is, again, unexpected. Uh, but page 107, uh, you write, reformers also justified the direct and indirect harm to prosecution of verse women by the rationale that domestic violence is a crime against society. Channeling Reagan's deft recharacterization of poor street criminals as a privileged class, battered women's advocates brand, oh, branded, branded the rhetoric of slavery, branded individual, often marginalized men's violence as the oppressive force in society with battering established as a patriarchal force in legal scholar Claire Houston's words. Feminists argued that regardless of the victim's wishes, Allowing DV to continue against an individual woman reinforces male control over women as a class in turning in turn, determining DV criminal policy was not a matter of weighing prosecution resistant victims interests against pro law enforcement victims interests. It was a matter of weighing prosecution resistant victims interests against the well-being of all women in this view the victim who refused to cooperate was an ally of male supremacy an accomplice to her own battering 
as feminist psychologist Lenore Walker remarked. Police and prosecutors' growing practice of overriding and even mistreating non-cooperative victims was particularly perilous, I would add another P, predictable for poor women of color. To be sure, there are many reasons why white middle-class women avoid prosecution and separation outside of direct coercion. Nevertheless, poor women of color face greater constraints that keep them tethered to violent men and are at greater risk of harm from law enforcement. And in an ironic twist, middle-class white women are more able to opt out of the carceral system that was created to fit their every woman needs. Studies confirm that women with income have greater access to resources to assist them in keeping their abuse private. They have the ability to afford private physicians and safe shelters, which results in their being able to escape detection from law enforcement. This is in contrast to the socially, socioeconomically distressed victims who called the police for aid, only to find that their aid has been defined as arrest for decades. Legal scholar Donna Coker remarks, it is a cruel trap when the state's legal interventions rest on the presumption that women who are serious about ending domestic violence will leave their partner while at the same time reducing dramatically the availability of public assistance that makes leaving somewhat possible. I will stop there. Uh, I just don't see a whole lot of concern amongst so-called white women feminists for black males, black females, anybody. All of this pretty much seems geared towards them and ensuring that a lot of black people are males and females. A lot of black people are going to be encaged. Uh, am I incorrect? I don't think that's incorrect. I, I mean, when you look back, you know, I, I've had occasion in writing the book and in this current project that I'm writing on to look back, you know, again at a lot of these writings in the 70s and 80s. And, you you know, and, and I think, you know, they haven't aged well. Let's put it that way. So when young feminist scholars are looking at, back at them, they're like, God, you know, why did they ha why did these amazing feminists have this racial blind spot? Why did they this and that? And it, and it strikes me that it wasn't a blind spot so much as their whole theory of what was going on in the world would be completely upended if they were to admit that, you know, a lot of the 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 policies that they were championing and the phenomena that they were describing were based on like stereotypical notions of people of color and had nothing to do with, you know, um, the lived experience of, of the women who they claim to be speaking on behalf of. Right. And, and I just don't think they could admit it because where a lot of these feminists came from was trying to assert their subordination, right? And women are subordinated relative to men in many areas, right? But as, you know, like Kimberly Crenshaw said, all of this is intersectional. And I would add also it's contextual. Like, you know, both women and men can be oppressed by patriarchy. Um, and, you know, some women are going to get a benefit from patriarchy sometimes, right? Like, so one benefit women get in patriarchy is, for example, in custody battles, women get a benefit from the idea of women as natural mothers 
and, you know, better, better parents. So that's kind of like a benign form of sex discrimination. So anyway, I think like these women, the feminists were, you know, the white feminists of the time were saying, um, you know, we're just looking at the world from our perspective of oppressed women and not from all the interrelated intersectional ways that people can feel oppression, including white supremacy. So for them, like they had to be at the very least willfully blind to it because like, again, there were quite literally feminists of color and other groups coming up and saying, this is not what we want. And what I found was that a theme in that kind of work in that very carceral feminist work is, you know, is almost like goading women into recognizing not only that they're victims and that, you know, whatever sort of feminist concern, you know, like crime that sparked feminist concern is the most important thing in their life, like more important than their family, more important than their kids, more important than their economic security. It's that he's, you know, abusive, right? And for some women it is, but they really wanted to be in a situation of convincing women that, okay, first of all, you've got to elevate this to the most important thing in your life. And then second of all, you have to cooperate with state power. Because if you don't cooperate with state power, you're like the, you know, feminist psychologist said, you're an accomplice to your own victimhood, right? Like, and every other woman's in, in the country and in the world. And you see this theme sort of reported, uh, you sort of, um, playing out a little bit in me too also. So the idea is if you don't recognize like a range of sexual behaviors as wrong, as, as not just wrong, but horrible wrongs and rapes and report it or out it or cancel it or like bring it to the light. If you don't, if you keep any of that as something that happened to you and maybe it's not good, but maybe something you can work out uh, or work out with that. If you do any of that stuff and don't immediately go to the police, you're the one who's enabling rapists, like telling women that their victimhood makes them responsible to be an agent of the state. And and that's the part that I'm really like, wow, you know, th that doesn't even seem very feminist to me. Telling female victims that they're no good unless they go along with the program that you that you've engineered. Paternalism is very common in the system of white supremacy uh talking down to black people seems to never go out of style even when talking about what's best for them I, I wouldn't you than... think that that feminists wouldn't want to be like that that feminists wouldn't want to be paternalists <laughs> like yeah. it's been my experience that individuals classified as white male fe <laughs> i was gonna say male female and children we had a white man on the program two weeks ago he wrote a report saying that he was a bigot at four and was going to talk down to uh, his black caretaker who was in her 40s and had children of her own who were much older than him. He uh, and he went to go talk down to her and practice racism and all the rest. I mean, hey, they, what does it mean to be white? Apparently, talking down to black people is a core component. Men, women, children, they all got that one. Uh, let's see. We'll nab a, a caller or two. Folks have a, a question for a professor of law at the University of Colorado Law School, uh, Professor Aya Gruber. Uh, let's see uh, the, the number 
7300, the code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Uh, our caller 2262-2262. If you had a question for Professor Gruber, you should be with us. Matthew Hurst. Yes, sir. Yes, thank you for taking my call, Augustine. Greetings to everyone on the line. Um, my question is from Ms. Gruber. Um, Ms. Gruber, I'm a non-white black male. I've been horribly victimized my entire life, so I get confused easily. My question is, um, when you were asked if you were white or non-white, um, what was your answer to that? Uh, my answer was, de- it depends on who you ask. Um, I have another question, if I could. Um, Ms. Gruber, when you're around white people, do they see you as white or non-white? You know, that's a really, really interesting question because it's it's very contextual. And I've both been like treated as a person of color for instrumental reasons by white people and denied status as a person of color for instrumental reasons by white people. And I'll explain. So when, you know, like say I'm in a group and somebody needs to say, oh, we have a woman of color in the group, right? Like for their diversity purposes, um, then I can be a woman of color, right? Um, But when I assert, for example, like, you know, if I'm talking about hiring or admissions, like we need to hire people of color, um, you know, they're just like, well, you know, like um, we don't have to listen to you. So it's very interesting. It's just, um, you know, being a person who like presents racially like ambiguous, like most people, if you ask them, would probably say that just by looking at me, I look Latina. Um, But in fact, I'm, you know, half Asian. I've, I've been sort of like my own identity, even though I identify as a person of color and somewhat as Asian, but, you know, like more light-skinned Asians and people who are 100% Asians, like I felt some um, colorism there too, which is interesting. Um, but, but again, like I, I have found that my race to other people often depends on how they would like to manipulate that to the benefit of what they're trying to achieve. And I think as Gus was saying, like a lot of the times what, you know, a lot of my white interlocutors are trying to achieve is white supremacy. So I've like totally seen that happen, but I don't, you know, again, I don't claim to be in a place of lived experience, you know, um, to speak for, you know, uh, the people who have been terrorized by like the state or have grown up like very vulnerable to state violence, because I don't even think, you know, if I was a hundred percent Asian that I, that an Asian woman or a white woman is vulnerable to state violence. So, so I hate to be complex about the answer. Like I identify as a woman of color. Um, You know, my mother was disowned when she married my father. There's, you know, I've got a history of, you know, my mother being detained on the basis of a race. And I've got a history of, like, racism in my family and stuff. But I, you know, but then again, I understand the complexities and the ambiguities. 
and the line. So I don't, you know, purport to speak for, you know, women of color necessarily, given that I am biracial. But it's it's very interesting. Like I, it's very complicated to trace the times when people treat me as a person of color and when they don't, because there's they're almost invariably political and about trying to like they don't like something I'm saying or they do like something I'm saying. It's trying to like situate their own point of view. Thank you for your response, Mr. Gruber. And thank you guys for taking my call. And I'll be mine. Much obliged, good sir. Uh, before we nab uh, Thomas in New York, uh, Professor Gruber, you said racism in your own family. What 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 does that mean? Can you give us details? Yeah, I mean, so you know, this is a story that you know I, I've been told because my grandfather on my dad's side, who was like white and Jewish, died before I was like one, so I never met him. But um, he basically, when my dad said he was marrying my mom, kind of like slammed down his fist on the table and said, you're no son of mine and, and walked out and, um, you know, was out of out of his life, basically. And, um, you know, it's interesting because my my mom, uh, when my sister was born, she's older than me, wrote him a letter that said, you know, you can, which I'm like, I wouldn't have done that. But she was, she was basically like, you could hate me, you know, but please, for the sake of your son who loves you, don't be estranged from your son. And for the sake of your, your grandchildren, let them have a grandfather. So she actually wrote him, um, you know, like a letter. And I, you know, I don't know what happened because he died pretty soon afterwards, but I heard like in his office, he had a safe and they found all, you know, his important whatever he put in the safe. And one of the things they found in that safe was that letter. That's the way the story goes. But, um, yeah. So, I mean, you know, and it, it's, it's, it's weird being um, biracial in a family that maybe like the white side of the family doesn't so much accept the of color side. Right. Um, that's, that's an interesting place to be. It's also interesting to be um, somebody who works on race in a world where Asianness is thought of as sort of foreignness, like being a, a recent Asian immigrant, um, and and all that comes all you know all that comes along with that because my mother's family was here for many 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 years and. Um, they had owned land in what's now Silicon Valley. But when the U.S. government during World War II came and put all the Japanese citizens in uh, Japanese American citizens, American citizens of Japanese descent. So these were American citizens. When they swept them up and put them all in the camps, they also took their land. Um, so I don't know. It's just interesting because we, we have ideas that, you know, maybe Asians share similar experiences and to some extent you do, but within, you know, racial groups, there's a lot of variability and there's a lot of difference. So it's just been an, an interesting thing to be somebody who writes on race and researches race and the criminal justice system. But I don't really do a lot of writing and researching about my own race um, because, you know, the criminal justice system is something that is 
so very much in this country a legacy of enslavement, a legacy like a post-colonial legacy, and also something that has to do a lot with changing um, demographic patterns in the United States, like how many Latinos have arrived. You know, so so it's just a very interesting place being sort of a biracial Asian who writes about issues that have to do with race, but not necessarily my own race. Fascinating. Much obliged uh, for the, the detail, Professor Gruber. Thomas in New York, uh, did you have a question for Professor Gruber? You should be with us, sir. Yes, Gus, thank you. Um, I had a few questions. Um, what did you uh, what did you self-identify as when your state ID, your driver's license, job application, census form, did you identify as a white or Asian? Um, I generally identify as an Asian if they only let me check one box. If they let me check two boxes, I check both boxes. Um, yeah, I don't, yeah, that's, that's generally what I do. Um, when I was in school, uh, when I was in school, they used to call me China, which actually, I went to school in Miami, which actually means an Asian looking Latina. So, so that was weird. Oh, okay. Um, how did um, did you notice a difference when you interacted with um, mixed race Japanese and white um, people in your peer groups that had a white mother instead of a Japanese mother? Did they have a different um, that, mentality or mindset? That's really interesting. You know, I have uh, a sense that, you know, and this is just, just a very gendered sense, and I think this, of course, depends on, like, how you're raised or whatever, but but people who were raised by a, a mother who's a person of color maybe tend more to identify as a person of color, you know, than people uh, whose fathers are, but I could be wrong. I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if that's true. Um, but, you know, I didn't know. I knew one other uh, half-Japanese person growing up so that you know and I knew one other full Japanese like ethnically Japanese person but they're just when I was growing up there weren't many Asians um like in I went to a huge public school but there weren't a ton of Asians in Miami so um it was it was not as present for for me that that I had other people I could compare my experiences to. Okay, well, thank you for the answer. Um, now, most um, Black people, um, we have a serious um, feminism problem, um, and um, some even call themselves womanists. Um, now, Black males have absolutely no power. Uh, we live in a system of white supremacy, as you agreed to earlier which happens to be a white patriarchal system, does black women being feminist even make logical sense in your opinion? Well, there have been quote unquote black feminists from the very beginning. And I mean the very beginning, even if you um, look back, you know, and you see Ida B. Wells, she was a feminist, right? I mean, she was one of the, most vocal 
women uh, on behalf of, of, of rights at the time, but she was totally against the mainstream white feminist movement back in, you know, the late 1800s to raise the age of consent um, to, you know, to whip up people with anti-rape sentiments, which would lead to lynching. Um, but, but she was a feminist and kind of known so at her time. So from the beginning, there have been black feminists, there have been feminists of color, but their brand of feminism just look really different. And, and I think, you know, unsurprisingly, I don't think this should be a surprise, although it is to many people that A, there was even any other voice in feminism that, um, but B, you know, these kind of voices didn't gain traction because feminism operated in tandem with the social phenomena at the time, like enslavement and Jim Crow. So, you know, why is it we think that for, you know, feminists like the crimes, it's never like, you know, the boss who is, you know, keeping the wages of marginalized women of color who are working to the bone or them being gouged on the rent or anything like that. Those are never, those are never the, the crimes that feminists care about. All those crimes against women that aren't like rape and domestic violence. Well, rape and domestic violence in the late 1800s were constructed by legislatures in the South as quote unquote Negro crimes. And one of the things that they would do is they tried to create their voter disenfranchisement laws to make sure that the Negro crimes led to people that led to the men not being able to vote because the women couldn't vote yet anyway. Um, and so interestingly, I think it was in Mississippi, like one of the proposals was that you would have domestic, all forms of domestic violence and sex crimes be crimes that rendered you ineligible to vote, but murder wouldn't be because they knew that like whites were, white men were killing a lot of people. So from the very outset, like these crimes, quote unquote, crimes against women, they're not all the only thing that, that people can do bad to women, but they became the poster children for feminism and they were, they were sort of singled out by segregationists in the South. So it's, you know, it's, it's very interesting that, you know, a lot of feminists don't know this history. And I got to tell you, there are tons of women of color who are also feminists who take a kind of carceral approach to feminism because that's just always been the way it is with feminism. So I do think that there, you know, are women of color, including black women who do like so, sort of support the mainstream feminist view. But I also think there have been throughout history schools of different kind of feminism that weren't like that right, that were way more about looking at what a lot of, like, for example, black men and women have in common that is oppressing them, like, for example, white supremacy, or what poor men and women have in, um, in common, and that would be like an unfair system that doesn't have social safety nets, or that, that where the, you know, where the rich keep all the money. Like, there were a lot of schools of feminism that wanted to look towards that, but they just never got traction, like the sort of put put the men in jail school and by men it really was black men so you know yeah that's how it happened 
Okay, thank you. And my last question, thank you, Gus. Um, how can um, well, well, I'll switch that. Um, you, yeah. How can men counter feminism? Um, because it's um, you know, taking away a lot of, it's made a lot of things unequal. I think. Uh, how can men counter it? Do you think? Uh, because you'll get ridiculed. Um, you know, you'll get demonized for saying something. So, what's an effective way of countering? Yeah, I think it's, um, I think it's really hard, right? Because if you're a man and you say some of the things I've said about feminists, right? And the history of feminism, you'll just be called a sexist and they'll be like, well, of course you think that, right? Like more proof that, but, but I think one of the things is it's, it's very careful to do is say like, look, you know, I believe in equality and I believe that nobody should be subjected to violence and there shouldn't be rape and all this. Of course I believe it. But what has happened is a system in which feminists have been complicit with all the things that people are out protesting, right? Like police violence, like the prison system, um, like maintaining poverty, maintaining segregation. And, and, Feminists should be against that, right? I mean, you don't have to say, like, all feminists are like this, because, again, there are many schools of feminism, and not all of them were that, you know, sort of lock them, lock them up and throw away the key brand. But I think it is fair to point out that that brand somehow became the mainstay and that it's really um, – has bolstered and intersected with a lot of things that I think if you're talking to like liberal progressive women, they don't like. And that includes like mass incarceration, segregation, poverty, so many things that, you know, this brand of white or carceral feminism or whatever you want to call it, this brand of really punitive feminism has bolstered all these bad things, you know? So I, that's what I would do. I mean, I, I mean, I agree that I think, Again, this is one area where being a woman will give you some privilege. It's that you can, but still, you 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 can't imagine the things that I've, that that have been said to me about my writing and stuff. Too, I've I've been told to my face that women die because of me. So it is, you know, I I think it's hard to do this work where you're challenging things that people think are just so natural, right? But people thinking just like putting people in jail was natural is 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 how we got here is how we got to this situation in our country of, of mass incarceration. So I just, I mean, I wish you luck. <laughs> that's, that's what I can say. <laughs> she said, I wish you lucky once again. Uh, before we nab uh, Kwaku, I guess he dialed in on the Skype line. Uh, just two uh, quick things. Uh, one, Ian Hani Lopez was a guest on the program way back when, 13 years. He's also a law professor, but he wrote the book White by Law, which does relate a little bit to the program since we've been talking about racial classification and non-white people and all that. But he said one of the things with these racial classifications and white supremacy is that when you make things law, like about punishment, and we got to be very carceral. It makes seems it makes things seem almost ordained by God, which can make it very difficult to change things. I thought that was really important and pertinent to our dialogue today. Also, man, when they tell you, Professor Gruber, 
women die because of you. Now you can be accepted as white sometimes. When they look at Anthony Broadwater, myself, when they say women die because of you, they mean something very different. Same sentence. Kwaku. Yep. Did you have a question for Professor Aya Gruber? You should be with us. Kwaku, did you are you there? Just listening? Or if you're talking, maybe you're muted or Oh, I think we got you that time. Try it again. Okay. Uh, as I was saying, greetings to the guests, uh, Gus and the callers. Uh, my first question is, who is more confused about racism, white supremacy, white people or non-white people? I don't think white people are confused. I think they're in deliberate denial. No, of course, I can't say it like all white people, but like the general construct of, of white person is, I, I don't think there's any confusion there. I don't think, I, so, so for example, it, it, it's interesting to me because with these, you know, and again, this this kind of like dovetails with feminism. And I think, Gus, we had talked about this over the email with, um, you know, with, with the parents and the mothers mainly showing up to shut down the teaching of, history of real history of this country in schools. Um, you know, I don't think, you know, there's a lot of like the counter to that, like, Oh, they just don't understand what critical race theory is and isn't. And if they only knew more, right? Like, no, I think it's precisely because they understand what it is that they're trying to shut it out. So I, I wouldn't use the word confusion. Okay. <clears throat> Thank you. Um, my next question is, uh, who's the intended audience of your book and what was your goal for writing the book? Oh, that's a really good question. So, you know, interestingly, the last caller was like, well, you know, situating myself as a black man, how do I try to fight this without, you know, not just being run out of town, but having the calls co uh, cops called on me or something like that? And I, and I think that's a really, really good question. Because I was hoping to talk to young feminists thinking of becoming activists and lawyers in the space of criminal law who have in their mind, okay, I'm going to make the next mandatory minimum for rape. I'm going to make the next, you know, funding that goes to the police department to be, you know, the like, like women's unit. Or like, I'm going to look at the New York City Police Department and, and see how misogynistic they are against people who complain about rape. And I'm just going to give them even more money, right? Like, so, so my intended audience is if you're, you're coming up with that sort of feminist set of beliefs that I, like I did, that I had ingrained in me, um, you know, here's another way of looking at the world. And maybe before you go down that road of being just another, Dream of income and power to race, you know, to a, a, what I think of as a very racist arm of the state. Um, like, a, you know, not there, there are other ones too, but like very particular. Like before you go that way, um, 
you know, think about it and maybe see how that goes. So it was really kind of intended for young feminists and they don't have to be women, but young people who like are very interested in what it means to be a feminist. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of who I was hoping to convince were people who might not agree with me, you know, at the outset. Okay, thank you. Um, and this, uh, just kind of following up on the last caller's question, uh, just for some more clarity, um, can you provide like some specific phrases or, you know, sayings that, or quotes that reveal truth about, you know, the um, system of racism, and white supremacy, or uh, so-called feminism? Uh, I, I identify as a victim of racism. So oftentimes when I speak about feminism, I can you know, it's kind of received negatively. So do you, ha do you have like some specific phrases or recommendations? Yeah, I mean, I don't know what the specific phrases are, but one thing I do notice that works, and it's kind of maybe just a function of the world we live in where I think like personal identity is doing a lot of work these days in terms of arguments. Like, so this is one of the areas where I was saying earlier that I'm de-raced or e-raced is when I'm kind of, um, you know, talking about the racism of uh, the feminist system, I'll, I'll get a white woman say, oh, well, it's, you know, like easy for you to say, but what about all the black women who are going to suffer because, you know, we're not being, we're not putting enough, like, men in jail, right? Like, so, you know, so it's kind of like, you know, if you're speaking from a place of race and you are a person of color, I think that white feminists feel less emboldened to, you know, go full force with the, oh, you're horrible, and things like that. Um, which is why I think a lot of the time I've, I've, you know, I'm being called a white woman, a white woman, um, despite like self-identifying as a person of color, um, is by other white women who don't want to hear the critique, right? So one of the things I've noticed is if you could say, like, feminists in the 70s, like, some of the famous feminist anti-rape activists, like, were kind of justifying the murder of Emmett Till. Like, that's, that's kind of a big one, you know? Um, that's, where they're, that's where some of the thought came from. That, you know, instead of looking at the history of, you know, lynching and racial terrorism of black men in the South, what they took from that is not like, okay, we've got to not repeat these patterns, but like somehow that made black men more sexually dangerous because they're going to want to like conquer white women now. That was one of the things that mainstream feminists said. Um you know, may, that, that same feminist in the same book said of the Scottsboro Boys case that, and this is almost a direct quote, I, I kind of have it memorized, that at the time, you know, the famous Scottsboro case where um, Ruby Bates and Victoria Price were like sort of uh, hoboing on a train. This was back in, what, 30s, 40s? Hoboing on a train and they fabricated a gang rape and, you know, you know Many years later, posthumously, um, the Scottsboro boys 
were um, exonerated. But anyway, like what she says of that infamous case is that, well, the progressives, the progressives of the time were really into civil rights and they needed their heroes. And so they made heroes out of a bunch of semi-literate miscreants and vilified two white women in the process. So that's what you say to Scott, Scott's rural boys, that it was vil- that, that this case was about vilifying white women and not about the fact that, <laughs> you know, men were put in jail for their entire lives for a crime they didn't commit and almost lynched, right? Subject to a lynch mob. Children, Th- second that's time this program, of- children. Children, exactly, exactly, right? And it'll never, and, and, and that's another thing too that, that um, the race part does. Like feminists would be much more, like when you see when they talk about juvenile justice, oh, well, I don't believe, you know, I don't believe that like children should go to jail. No, I'm not for that. But like when you look at a lot of these rape crimes and, and different crimes, especially sex crimes, they are in fact committed by children or children are accused, but the children, and especially if they're boys of color, they don't get to, they don't get to have child status. Their race makes them ineligible to be children. So, I mean, I don't know what soundbody could use, but I, I would say that, you know, in defense of this idea of taking crimes against women seriously, you know, white feminists had in mind white women and what white women would want, right? And they didn't listen. A lot of them didn't listen to black feminists. And a, a lot of them also said really racist things, you know, in sort of defending their programs. Like, for example, you know, rationalizing Emmett Till's murder. I mean, I don't think you could get worse than that, honestly. Okay. <clears throat> thank you. Um, just my last question, and uh, thank you again. Um, so my last question, and a yes or no would, would be fine for this one. Um, so in regards to eliminating the system of racism, white supremacy, and producing a system of justice, is it constructive for people classified as black to participate in feminism? And I'll go ahead and mute my line. After that. Yes. But I think there's ways to participate. There's changing, tearing down, changing its meaning. I, I just don't understand. You know, we still have a situation where single mother women of color are disproportionately homeless and dying and poor, right? Like there are so many converging interests that feminists should have with those seeking to topple white supremacy that it's just, you know, it's just amazing. Like there's so many things to fight against right now. And, and we're in a moment when, you know, there are a lot of white liberals who are completely activated as anti-racist now because of Trump. But yet, when it comes to crimes against women in criminal law, it, it, it's just like there's such a holdout there. And, and I think only by, by women of color, men of color, and there being diverse voices within that movement that, you know, that kind of energy, because there's tons of energy behind things like Me Too, right, behind feminist movements, that that kind of energy be, can be directed in ways that don't end up further entrenching um, 
racism. So my short answer is is yes, but it's not easy. Much Thank you. A, much obliged, Kwaku. Uh Dread138, he was actually going to help us do the narration for Alice Siebold's Lucky, but then we got the audiobook and got to hear her read her own memoir, which was a thousand times better. Um, before I nab Dread138, this is uh, just from page 166 of The Feminist War on Crime, The Unexpected Role of Women's Liberation in mass incarceration uh, from 166 and I I, I said this uh, I was so excited because when I contacted Professor Gruber about being on the program I connected this uh, white people are not ignorant they're not unaware not unexpected and I connected this all the way back I said hey when we talk about the school to prison pipeline white women are at the center and she said, well, that's not really the focus of my research. And I said, oh, yeah, no problem, all that. But when I got to 166, oh, she had one paragraph in the middle that says, one is left to wonder why progressive campus activists assume that a rights-denying campus disciplinary system would be wholly different from the racist criminal system they regularly protested. College, college administrators, oops, make sure I get that. College administrators tend to avoid tangling with rich, powerful parents, conferring an undeniable advantage on the more privileged party in a sexual assault dispute. It is well known that primary and secondary school discipline has long been applied disproportionately to marginalized African-American children, especially boys black male privilege department of education data on national primary and secondary education shows that black boys constituted 25 percent of suspended students and black girls 14 percent in the 2015 to 2016 academic year even though each group made up about eight percent of the student population both overrepresented but wow being a black boy uh, moreover, black students were a third of the students referred to police, although they constituted 15% of the student population. Uh, Dread138, did you have a question for Professor Gruber? Yes, good evening, Gus. Good evening, Professor Gruber. Good evening, callers and listeners. Uh, Professor Gruber, I'm curious if you would be willing, if you have shared already, that's fine, if you would be willing to share or contrast and compare high-profile high sex trauma cases such as Bill Cosby to um, Harvey Weinstein. And I have the second question, um, given what, what you've been saying and so far what I've caught, um, do you think some white feminists value whiteness over the feminist identity? I mean, my life. Thank you. Um, yeah, so just three things. Thank you so much for that question. Um, they're, they're both great questions. But the first thing on the school thing, the only thing, I, like, I, I mean, the statistics are indisputable that the school disciplinary system is so disproportionately brought to bear against children of color and particularly black boys. That, I mean, that's just, it's like you're not going to find any statistics otherwise. And, you know, having, like, school safety officers, like, raises that. What I just, 
What I couldn't say was like, who's doing the reporting? Because the frank, you know, matter is like, when you look at things like racial profiling amongst the police, it's like done by a lot of black police officers also, right? So it's not always just white people doing it, but it is always generally black men and boys who are getting the brunt of it, you know? And so it's, it, it can get complicated like that, but there is no doubt that the system, you know, whoever's triggering it. And I, I do believe there, there, there might, it might be disproportionately white women. I just don't know. Right. But, but that definitely who's on the receiving end of the burden in this case are, are students of color in general and, and, and black boys, like even more in particular. So as your two questions, like, it's very interesting to me about both of those high-profile cases sparking this Me Too revolution because, you know, I think it kind of like for young feminists painted a false picture of how policing, prosecution, and imprisonment really work. So they were thinking of these, you know, disempowered sort of um, victims and very, very, very powerful men who seem to just get away with it over and over and over and over and over and over again. And so then there's an outcry. And then, you know, in, in both Weinstein and, and Cosby's cases, there were unprecedented uses of evidence there that, you know, I, I'm not going to get into the weeds with it, but, you know, from my defense attorney perspective, it, you know, it really was giving a lot of benefit to the prosecutor that the law says you can't give, like letting them parade witnesses in uncharged conduct, like one after the other, after the other, like you're not supposed to do that. And, and, and that was all in service of the idea that these men were so powerful and, you know, the victim so disempowered that by using the criminal law and giving prosecutors a lot of leeway, that that somehow like balances the scale of powers and it was really a pro underdog move. And I just kind of see it a different way. I think the typical recipient of broadened police and prosecution authority are not like these untouchable guys, right? Um, it's, you know, people who are generally policed people where like, you know, Gus was reading before, like the women, um, you know, in neighborhoods where they have no other choice when they need violence interruption at the moment or need some service, but to call the police, right? Like those are the, the people who will be policed, not just the worst untouchable people. And so when we create these laws that give the state and prosecutors an enormous amount of power, because we think it's going to topple like the Trumps of the world, right? That's what, what women imagine. Ah, wait, are you Trump's next, Trump next for sexual assault. It never works out that way. Right. Because, you know, you have to have slipped from your power even a little bit to be vulnerable, which those two had. Right. And those at the height of their power still have the power to avoid the broadened criminal law. So the criminal law that's been broadened in the name of top, toppling these high profile people, it's just operating out there. And, you know, all the people who weigh in on me, too, in favor of these laws never follow up who's really coming under the purview of it. Right. Because once once laws pass, once. Harvey Weinstein's in jail. We don't have to think about it anymore. Um, so that's kind of to your your first question. And wait, what was the second question? There was a second question. 
Dread138. Yes, I'm here. Um, sorry, I was muted. The second question was, do you think that some white women value the identity of whiteness or dedication to white supremacy over their identity as feminists? I mean, I, I think that they, um, they would say, no, you know, uh, we're, we're doing this reform on behalf of black women. That was a very common thing. And also, you know, I have to say that there are women of color who have a carceral view of, you know, of how we should deal with crimes against women or gender violence who have said, well, you know, your point of view seems to be very good for, for men of color, for straight men of color, but what about women of color? So there is this, you know, thread that like, you know, fine, maybe these carceral reforms put black men in jail, but, you know, if they're putting black men in jail, they must be helping black women, right? So that's kind of, I think, what those who are in favor of these policies would say. But I think, and in my book, I lay this out through, through many, many pages, I think, you know, that that claim that this isn't racism at all, in fact, if anything, this is on behalf of women of color, kind of falls apart um, uh, on scrutiny. Because, again, it was literally women of color telling a lot of the white feminists, this isn't the answer, right? This is, like, we see this as a multifaceted thing. And quite literally, uh, that Latina shelter feminist saying, white supremacy is the root of domestic violence. Like, that is a quote from her. And what you see then is white women completely insisting on what sociologist Beth Ritchie has called the every woman dialogue, which is like, it doesn't matter where you are on the racial or socioeconomic spectrum, violence, domestic violence equally happens to all, all people. And to the extent that women of color feel more violence, it's not because of white supremacy, it's basically because their men are a bunch of sexist. I mean, that was kind of the response. So for me, the very fact that you have, you know, the mainstream celebrated feminists of the day who are really the architects of the modern domestic violence movement and modern anti-rape movement kind of saying like, um, yeah, you know, here are women of color and, and women victims of color telling us their experiences and we're saying to them, nope, it doesn't matter. You know, that is to me, their feminism is white supremacy then. It's not like they, you know, like their brand of feminism then just becomes all mixed up in white supremacy. And then, you know, when you have like that quote from Zorza, when you have really good empirical studies showing that this program that helps white middle-class women because, you know, the threat of jail maybe, you know, slaps them out, you know, gives them the wake-up call or whatever, but it's not working for communities of color. Um, and they just say, oh, that's, you know, that's only because men of color don't feel pain. You know, that makes their feminism white supremacy. So I just think that it 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 is... Um, it is not an either or. I think that the very feminism itself got 
overly complicit with white supremacy. And so you need to change the feminism itself. I don't think they picked white supremacy over feminism. I think they made a brand of feminism that was complicit in white supremacy. That's really even a harder thing to disentangle. From the black male perspective at time, they can seem one and the same. Uh, the caller being Santa Rosa, Southern California, all the love. Did you have a, a question for Professor Aya Gruber, be in Santa Rosa? Uh, yeah, I, I tuned in extremely late. Um, I have a couple of questions. Uh, my first question is, are you a feminist? I consider myself a feminist. Uh, okay. Um, my next question is, uh, when you fill out applications, why don't you put white? I, I do. I do when I have, um, like, the option to check two. But I don't know. Like, I feel as a biracial person, like, I don't feel completely white. I feel like I can pass for white and that you know and like it's interesting how your identity is constructed like I'm you know charged with being white when I'm critiquing white feminists like the white feminists will be like well you're white you know so it's it, it's just interesting um but yeah I guess like if I were to self-identify um I would identify as a person of color um, but, you know, I don't think it's the same as somebody who's biracial black. I think there's a different history. And, you know, I would totally understand why, even if given two check, two check boxes, um, you know, black, right? But I, I just feel that um, I, I, I want to recognize the difference in lived experience between like being somebody who is half white and, and not like that, that I, that I can acknowledge that. Although I identify as a woman of color. Okay. Um, my next. Well, 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 I mean, like, what do you think about that? I, I mean, what are your thoughts? If I can put the question back on you. Uh, well, I'm not white, so I don't know. <laughs> what I what I put there besides black, so I'm not white yeah. at all. But if I was biracial, right. wouldn't you put white? Don't know. Yeah. Don't have that experience. So um, right. um did I answer your question? <laughs> yeah, 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 no. I was curious, yeah. Um, all right, my next question. Um when you use the word people of color, I noticed you used it uh, uh, I, I noticed that when you use it, uh, outside of using that word, you also said black people or black women or black boys. So I'm trying to figure out who are people of color and are we qualified to be people of color? Yes. So I definitely think black people are people of color. But the reason I, so people of color, I'm just using sort of painting as the broad brush, um, you know, people who I think um, have racial or ethnic identities that make them vulnerable to white supremacy and to oppression. So Latino, 
you know, Native American, Indigenous, Asian, you know, and a lot of it's contextual. And of course, Black Americans. The reason I single out Black is because even amongst people of color, the, well, I think probably like most of American law and most of American policy, but, but even especially criminal law and policy, there is a distinctly escalated oppressive effect when it comes to both black men and women. They're saying, yeah, exactly. Latino counterparts, but the men, the black men um, are probably the most targeted. Now that being said, women have been the fastest growing segment of the prison population over the last several years. Like the police are getting very okay with arresting women, especially women of color. Um, that's Latino women, but disproportionately among women, black women. So it's not only just there being like racism against, you know, people of color writ large within the group of people of color subjected to racism. It's particularly pronounced against black people. Okay. Um, my last question. Of course, uh, it depends. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Uh, what did you say? No, I was just I was just going to make a little caveat that you know, of course, you know how a lot of this operates. It depends on where you are. You know, if you're you know down towards the border, you know, you're going to get a lot of a really lot, a lot, a lot of racism. You know, based on you know being Latino. So you know, some some of this is context dependent. But I feel very comfortable saying, generally, of the criminal justice system. First of all, it is very racist, but second of all, within that, particularly against black people. Okay. That'll be it. Coran, I wanted to make sure before we let you enjoy the rest of your evening, uh, I learned quite a bit uh, in in reading uh, the feminist war on crime, the unexpected role of women's liberation in mass incarceration uh, this is on 184 I kind of did a double take not that I should have been surprised but you know uh, you write because of the 1980s predator laws sexual offense carries serious serious penalties the injustice apparently lay in Persky's discretion to sentence below the 14 year maxim- maximum of Brock Turner's crimes yet the judge and probation department applied discretion in a prototypically progressive way by accounting for factors like age intoxication and lack of criminal record that militated against the defendant's culpability and recidivist risk for Dauber such factors were illegitimate because campus rapists are all young they are all intoxicated for the most part and they're all high achieving however young and intoxicated rape defendants benefiting from youth and intoxication mitigation are no different from juvenile murder defendants benefiting from the ban on juvenile capital punishment, recognizing that mitigating characteristics provide leniency to the class of defendants with those characteristics is an observation, not an argument to be sure progressives like Dauber have self-induced myopia about the problematic U S prison state when defending harsh criminal sanctions intended to protect minorities. Take, for example, hate crime legislation, a perennial, 
progressive carve-out in the face of accumulating evidence that defendants of color are disproportionately subjected to hate crime enhancements, incarceration critics are beginning to realize that criminalizing identity-based animus is a double-edged sword metaphor. In fact, the population of identity protecting criminal law has given states another weapon in the enforcement arsenal. In May 2016, the governor of Louisiana signed the Blue Lives Matter law, making Louisiana the first state to treat offenses against public safety workers as hate crimes. Now, so many ways I could look at that again, unexpected. I look back at that, but I mean, for real, for real, non-white people are the most real. Oh, is this another one where we get the double? Are black males most likely to be subjected to hate crime? Yes, not oh. most likely, but far more disproportionate to the share of population than whites. So, like, so I don't have the statistics at my fingertips. I could pull them up, um, but all right. So they did one of the, you know, like it's very hard to get good crime statistics, but probably the best we have are the various um, Department of Justice, Bureau of Justice statistics, you know, collecting these reports in the database. So they did a a victimization survey, and that's kind of how they measure hate crimes. And so so when they crunched, you know, who is committing hate crimes, um, the... (laughs) The majority of victims of hate crimes were white, okay? Like something like 56% were white. And it was about evenly split between black and white perpetrators. And I think like 20% of the hate crime victims were black. So like who are all these white people claiming to be hate crime victims? Well, it turned out to be like a lot of women who believe that gender crimes are hate crimes, which technically they're not, um, and, you know, LGBTQ, uh, you know, white, which, you know, can be subject to hate crimes. Um, so what you're getting in these hate crime laws sweeping in is any time something is plausibly on the basis of race. So imagine that there is a rival gang fight or imagine that, you know, two guys were getting in a fight and they're slinging insults at each other, Right. Now, and and imagine then that, like, the only people who are really being monitored for whether there are fights slinging, where people are slinging racialized insults at each other, are in the neighbors, the neighborhood's designated high crime neighborhoods. And studies consistently confirm that that what the police designate as a high crime neighborhood has very little to do with the actual level of crime there and everything to do with the percentage of Blacks in the population or um, the socioeconomic status or whether it's perceived as a poor black neighborhood. So this is just true. So they go into these areas and they're the ones sort of policing the fights and policing the skirmishes and stuff. And if racial epithets are uttered even between two people of color, right, like say, you know, black person, Latino person, um, or just in the course of the fight, that can be a hate crime. Right. And so if you've got, you know, um, this is very becoming very popular in San Francisco where you have 
you know, these disputes, like there was recently this dispute with um, a few years back where there was, um, you know, and, and I, I don't know if the person was of color, but where there was a little boy who, you know, was like riding his bike on the sidewalk or something. And then, for example, an Asian um, man like yelled at him and he like hit the Asian man with a with a plastic bat that like an 11-year-old kid had. And the question of whether that's a hate crime, right? Like, and, and it was, and it, you know, was argued that it should be charged as a hate crime. So with things going on like that, right, you can imagine why hate crime laws in the name of putting white supremacists in jail have ended up disproportionately enhancing the sentences of people of color, of black and brown men. <laughs> you know, that is just, that has happened. And it shouldn't be surprising because it's just police power. It's prosecutorial power. It's another way to induce pleas. It's another way to stack charges, right? And all of this power does not flow evenly, right? So when I tell my students this about hate crimes, I have to like show them the statistics because they won't believe it. But, you know, every time the legislature passes a law, and it and could be in the name of something really good. Yeah, of course we want to stop hate. Of course we want to stop rape. rape. Of course we want to stop DV. But every time they do it, it's just generally an accrual of power to the carceral state, which we know is infested with racism. And so we shouldn't be surprised that even the anti-racist criminal laws and prosecution turn out to be racist. Well, <laughs> uh, I don't want to say stupefied or speechless or even surprised, but I mean, I just as someone who's had a podcast for 13 years and we've talked to all these folks, I've never heard anyone explain. Oh, yes, Gus, even the hate crime laws are disproportionately applied to black people. Even you, too, could be charged as hate crime. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, we had a straggler. uh do you have time to nab our caller in Southern California? I think this might be the person that recommended your book. Uh, do you have a, a moment to get her question? Sure. No problem. Let's see. One, one, five, nine. Do you have a question for Professor uh, Aya Gruber? Uh, greetings, Gus. Greetings, callers and listeners. Sorry. Um, can I be heard? Bur yes, sir. We can, can hear I you. Can I be heard? Miss um, um, Guest, how um, do feminists, work against uh, racism, white supremacy. Yeah, I mean, I think there are, are, are groups like um, and sort of groups that are, are helmed by uh, feminists of color um, who are, you know, and, and it's sort of coalescing into a name, abolition feminists, for example, who actually believe in that abolition feminists who believe it's a feminist project to try to dismantle um, the, the penal state, like the mass incarceration system. Um, and so this is something that they consider not just a racial justice enterprise, but also a feminist enterprise. Um, because, you know, policing and prison and prosecution is often done in the name of women, you know, read kind of like white women. Um, but when you really look at it, you know, <laughs> Some of the worst mistreatment women get is at the hands of these actors, um, these state actors. 
so yes, there are there are there are many burgeoning and growing feminist projects that are very distinctly racial justice um, projects that focus on, you know, uh, women of color, that focus on the state, that focus on economic inequality, and and in reforming policing and imprisonment, or even even tearing it down, um, and and. And like me, you know, the other caller said, do you consider yourself a feminist? I do. I do want to see where there's oppression against people on the basis of their gender. I do want to see that stopped. I don't think that's, you know, I don't think that's controversial. Uh, what is controversial is kind of the, the specific program. And you see a lot of, of activists and theorists and lawyers who are dedicated to, you know, eradicating the oppression of women also engaged in these racial justice projects because they are, in fact, related more than they're in conflict. Um, but, but, you know, again, the brand of feminism that has ascended is the one that was perfectly willing to sacrifice um, the interests of, of, of many people of color. Um, you know, again, maybe some of it was unintended or it did like they just didn't realize how bad the problem is or how complicit it would be. But it is, you know, we are where we are now. Um, with feminism, and you see a lot of feminists now actively working against it. In fact, you know, a critical mass of feminists think that mandatory domestic violence arrests like shouldn't be a policy that 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 they should stop doing that. But it's very hard, even though now, like most, like a lot of the feminists who are the architects of it don't think there should be mandatory arrests. But now it's you know become an entrenched part of the system, and no politician or you know police cabinet or somebody running for DA wants to run on undoing the, you know, woman protecting domestic violence laws. So it's, it's like, you know, what I try to say to some of the young feminists is like, don't do the reform in the first place. Think really hard before the, you advocate the criminal law reforms, because once they're in place, they're pretty hard to reverse. That answer your question, sir? Not hearing you being said. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, I, I did hear, hear that answer. Okay. Uh, I, um, are these feminists, are they saying that they are working against the system of white supremacy, or are they just doing things that you believe that it's working against the system? Oh, I think they are. I mean, like Angela Y. Davis, you know, Critical Resistance, Miriam Kava. These are, you know, these are black feminists and they are actively working against the prison industrial complex. That is one of the biggest sort of drivers and purveyors of white supremacy. So, I mean, and, and they're definitely you know, I think both racial justice advocates and feminists. Um, so, I, I mean, I think so. I don't think they're mutually exclusive things, being a feminist. In fact, I, I, I find it kind of like sad that that so many people do see them as mutually exclusive things. I think that's a really bad thing. Thank you. Thanks Much obliged. Oh, we've been chatting it up. Uh, the book, The Feminist War, 
on crime, the unexpected role of women's liberation in mass incarceration uh, with Professor Aya Gruber. Uh, we'll definitely uh, have to uh, continue. Uh, keep an keep an eye on more of your work. I guess one folks can tune in next Monday, seven days. Uh, if we are alive that long, Kyla Schuler, the trouble with white women. I think some of these issues will be revisited. I think Miss Schuler is. Have you read that book, The Trouble with White Men? Have you checked that one out, Professor? No, Gordon? no, but I want to. Okay. No, I haven't read it yet. Yeah. Okay. Looking forward to next week. It's Anywho, I've, I've got to read very soon. Reading more important than watching uh, television. Lots to read. Uh, it has been a hoot. I'm so glad we could have you on the program. I hope our listener who recommended your work uh, was able to hear the broadcast. But thank you so much for hanging out with us uh, this Monday evening uh, to discuss your work. Hopefully we can have you back on the broadcast to uh, continue the dialogue. Also wanted to make sure I pointed out before you uh, exit, man, that's uh, somewhat historic. We've had a number of listeners ask for years about who is more confused about racism, white supremacy out of we've done over 2000 programs. We don't even have five people who have said that they think white people are not confused. Like almost everyone says white people are confused. It is like, Sue, I only need one hand and I would have extra fingers to count the number of guests who said, oh, no, white people are not confused about racism. That is like, wow, no asterisk in the history of the cows. But. Thank you so much again, Professor Aya Gruber. It has been a hoot. Learned a lot from your book. Thank you so much for having me, and thanks for having such a great show. Much obliged. Enjoy your evening and take great care. Okay, take care. For sure. Context of white supremacy. The feminist war on crime, the unexpected role of women's liberation in mass incarceration. Uh, we will take a short break and then we'll check in, see if folks have any thoughts on what they heard. Uh, make sure folks have the schedule for when we will be here for the remainder of the week. Uh, give us mm, two minutes. We'll check back in. Context of white supremacy. We'll be right back. And from the late 1960s, after the death of Martin Luther King and the riots and the upheavals and all like this, and black people with their fists in there and all like that and trying to stumble and fumble and find their way and get focus, the white supremacists made a blueprint and put it in action. And that is, I'm going to have these people so confused, they don't even know what they started out to do. And by the late 1970s, they had just about completed it. And we've been on that ever since. And you mentioned something very important. They are more comfortable than ever. But see, it's like making gorillas comfortable in a cage or monkeys or pandas. You still got them in a cage, but they're comfortable. See, so give them some bling bling. It's like giving an animal a brand new car and training the animal to ride up and down the street in it. And then you stand back and point at the animal. Like one white man said in the late 1950s, he said he doesn't care what kind of car a Negro has. He said he's still a nigger. 
And when he rides by in a shiny car, to him, it's just a monkey in a car. White people built a car, put a monkey in it, trained the monkey to drive the car, so now you're looking at a monkey in a car. See, but black people don't see themselves that way. But this is how the white supremacists see us, and they are the ones who run our business. And we have to know that, that when they look at us, that's what they see. That that's what they see. That that's what they see. And at a subliminal level, what they see begins to spill over into our brains so that we, at a subliminal level, see each other that way. And indirectly see ourselves that way. Context of white supremacy. Let us see. Uh, one, we'll be here on Thursday, uh, minimum. Book Club, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, reading The Man in the High Castle, second audio segment. Lots of people read. It was like landslide uh, in terms of listeners uh, who wanted to read this book. So there should be robust participation. No reason to vote for a book if you're not going to participate. 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. The Man in the High Castle. Thankfully, this is a short book, so we'll be done. This is not one of those, you know, we'll have to be listening to it for three, four months. Like, it's very short. I think we should be done by next month. New book. That's Thursday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, before I get to the details of the, today's broadcast, uh, wow, it's so right on time. Uh, I was going to share it with Professor Gruber, but I was trying to, you know, cover as much as we could, get to as many callers as we could and, you know, cover material from the book. So, uh, but I started today. I said before Seattle spoiled, they have like 20 different library branches for Seattle public library. I've not even been to all of the branches. I've done like half, uh, hadn't even done half until the past 12 months or so. Anyway, so today I ventured to one of the branches I've never visited before, Greenwood, even though I've been in this area many, many times, just never been to the library in this part of town. So I go to the library. I'm going to walk in the front entrance. They have a display, huge display right out front. You can see this image. I have it on my uh, social media. You can see it on Facebook and Twitter at Until Justice. If you want to see the image, but they have a huge display. And it features all of these books, Negro History Month, all of these books, 20 different authors, all black females. And they have uh, Nicole Hannah Jones, the 1619 Project, Cowbell, White Parent. They have Michelle Alexander, uh, the new Jim Crow, Cowbell. Uh, they have one of our favorites, Angie Thomas. Not the hate you give, which would also be a cowbell, but the the follow up. Uh, and then they had uh, Isabel Wilkerson case cowbell and second worst book ever. We read that on the book club uh, and bell hooks uh, and some other folks, uh, but exclusively Janet mock exclusively black females. This is the second time. I visited Seattle Public Libraries where they've had a Black History Month display that 
exclusively featured black females, totally excluded black authors. And I mean, a display that featured more than a dozen books, authors. The last time I said something, they changed it. And I spoke with a non-white librarian. This time I asked to speak to the Greenwood library manager. It is a white woman, Emily Grayson. She says, oh, I'm the person who constructed the display. And I said, well, it's for Black History Month. She said, yes. I said, well, there are no black male authors. You couldn't find one. I didn't ask for half. Right. Not trying to be greedy, patriarchal, toxic. Black. It's 20. You, you couldn't find one black male author to feature. And she said, well, you know, Women's History Month is next month. And we wanted to do something that focuses on black females. Now, again, this is the second time I've seen a display at Seattle Public Library that exclusively featured black females. I've never seen such a display featuring exclusively black males. So I say, hmm. She says, well, Women's History Month is next month. And so we wanted something that could kind of just lead in. We could leave it up for two months. So I said, so is it laziness? that you just wanted to put something up and then not have to change it for March. He said, Oh no, 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 no. That's not it. I said, okay. So do you ever display anything that exclusively features black males to combat black misandry? Cause that's a part of white supremacy. He says, no, no, we don't do that. We we're trying to work against racism. We do that Seattle public library, but we also think it's important to work against misogyny. Really? <laughs> so black males can't be displayed at all. No voice. Black males and Seattle Public Library. It's on record. Uh, Seattle Public Radio did a report recently about Seattle Public Library. They have a racism problem with black people being kicked out. That D word disproportionately and particularly same thing we just heard from Professor Aya Gruber, particularly with black children they almost exclusively kick out black children and that's one ooh we i bet any amount of money you want is nigger boys who get booted out of seattle public library but they just did a report about this is a problem that seattle public library is supposed to be working on so not only black people and black children in particular get booted out of the library black boys go and they can't even see a black male author i didn't say a dozen i didn't say 15 i said a single black male author on display for Black History Month. So I said, uh, can you, you know, explain to me like what what is the rationale? Because she said it was done consciously. She didn't say this was unexpected. She just, oh, my goodness. I didn't know I left out all the nigger mail. She said this was done deliberately. I said, so can you maybe write, maybe email what the rationale is for this, how this is constructive to do things where you totally exclude black males and feature black females who are critical of black males. So it's not just you don't get a voice at all. You're going to be criticized, projected as misogynists. That's the only way that you can even be considered and you can't speak for yourself. Can you maybe articulate to me how that's constructive? Like what's the benefit of that? How that's even supposed to be welcoming for black males who want to visit the library. She said she's not willing to write it down not willing to make a change. I said, no problem. The president, the interim 
Executive Director of the Seattle Public Library is Tim Fay. Tom Fay, excuse me, T-O-M, Tom Fay. His email is chieflibrarian at spl.org. I'm going to email Tom Fay and the rest of the Seattle Executive Branch to let them know not only do I not feel welcome, that's a big part of the mission statement at Seattle Public Library, I do not feel welcome specifically as a black male. I'm only thought of as a misogynist at the Seattle Public Library, but then this is repeat they call it recidivism is there an institutional bias misandry against black males are you doing something to address this because this seems to be like i said this is not the first time totally different branch where we'll do something to address black people but we have to leave out the nigger males white woman and a white woman the authority on Black History Month, proud to put up this display to address misogyny and racism. Again, the interim executive director and chief librarian, Tom Fay, his email is chieflibrarian at spl.org. You can drop an email, consider it like an investment in the cows, send them an email and share your thoughts on black misandry and why that is a major component of white supremacy racism. I'm surprised they didn't have Alice Seabold's Lucky up there. Maybe they'll put that up for March Women's History Month. And in addition, I was going to share with our guests because they do not have the feminist war on crime in the Seattle Public Library system at all. <laughs> like They can talk about all this nonsense with misogyny and no count toxic, patriarchal, privileged black males, but Miss Andrew and how black males are routinely the most victimized in all areas of people activity. No, that can't be addressed at all. And in fact, we can't even find one book or feature one book discussing authored by black males. Couldn't even get Will Smith's book. We can't Will Smith. Will Smith's book and put it out. Oh, that's right. He's a toxic, sexic black male, too. He was in the King Richard, the audacity being a film and then not name it after Serena and Venus. Yes. Yes. Chief librarian at SPL.org. If you have five minutes to send an email, black misandry. Uh, let's see. Uh, the program that we heard today. Uh, I learned quite a bit. Hate crimes. Isn't that something? But it just for me, it really enforced like, wow, concepts. Um, I don't hear a hue and cry of people saying that I'm going to be. I'm a misandrist. It's a disgrace how they treat old Anthony Broadwater. It's a disgrace how they treat old the Central Park Five. It's a disgrace what they do. Emmett Till, all of them. It's a disgrace. Khalif Brown. I'm a misandrist. I'm out. I'm caping for a black guy. I don't hear like, you know. Yeah. So in my view, it would be best to go about the business of justice. Uh, I just, anytime I look at feminist scholar, like you can go back in the archives and hear it. When I even hear the word feminist, I feel like they should place white in front of it, which I guess did at a number of points, because that's really what you mean. There are a number of so-called black people, males and females, who identify as so-called feminists. 
every single time like wow <laughs> in a system of white supremacy racism where black misandry is so central in so many ways you are aligning with white women and the ideology we talked about that with Urugu the racist ideology of white feminism which is really just about their power struggle with white men for who is going to have more control of negras and resources and the spoils of terrorizing non-white people worldwide that's really all this is about white men the racial contract Charles W. Mills guest on the program they are in agreement they may squabble with each other fight about who has how much control and territory white people do that all the time that has nothing to do at all with non-white people victims of racism white supremacy I would just say it shows the degree things spill over Mr. Fuller said things spill over from how racists think it spills over if you want to use that metaphor and I mean wow white people have been so aggressive with marketing their so-called feminist concepts wow it is amazing black males are not perfect neither are black females black males could do a lot to improve our behavior so could black ma uh, females but wow all of this white feminism this is exactly what you can expect something that ends up with that no count OJ Simpson and the no count raping black males they need to be caged and castrated and beaten and killed maybe not in that order that's about what I would expect from white and in fact she can talk all that about uh, white anti-racist right now I don't see any evidence of that this problem would be solved all of that talk about gun violence in New York right now New York Mayor Adams was just talking about bail reform got nigger children out here black males or raping and shooting police officers let's see how much reform continues let's see let's even watch some of these elections as they proceed but I mean if white people are serious about prison reform matter of fact matter of fact prison reform let's take the low-hanging fruit metaphor they were talking about cannabis I'm in Washington State they said that's gonna be legalized that'll help keep niggers out of prison in California LA Times they just had a really massive and lame report about how wow we have done a really poor job going back and getting non-white people who got all these lame cannabis charges nonviolent arrests and all the rest of it and messed up their record and can't get job can't get public housing and certain scholarships and all the rest of it we haven't done anything to go back and expunge things from their records now that this has been decriminalized and you got tons of white people making millions hasn't been addressed at all I thought that was a big part of why we would decriminalize that we get to that we get to that it's been in Washington State it's been a decade in California it's encroaching on a decade of legalization and we'll get to it we'll get to it we'll get to it Mm. I said that you can go back in the archives because we were on the air there. I said that all oh, that was nonsense. <laughs> the lip service to decriminalizing and criminal reform. Yeah, 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 yeah. White people lie. The other thing I'll say, I thought it was so fascinating about unexpected her sharing. She didn't have that in the original title uh, that the publishers added it on that. She said she didn't. She wasn't sure if it was a white person specifically. It could have been a group thing, that sort of thing. The publishing industry in aggregate is dominated by white women. 
So I don't know if it was a non-white person directly who may have been the one, you know, to tell her she needed to add that word to soften it. They're going to be upset. If anything, that just shows the power vitriol, really, but the power of white women that what? You're going to write something criticizing what? Talking about white women is racist. What? And she doesn't even say that a whole lot in the book, like white women being racist. Da, da, da. Like a lot of times it'll be uh, second wave feminists. And like she was saying, uh, 70s feminists and that type of thing. I don't think she has that anywhere in the book, even though it'd be super appropriate the whole way through. In fact, it should be the white feminist war on crime or even white women's war on crime would be super accurate. I forgot to ask about OJ Simpson. Arr, that's one big mistake. I should have asked about that because I had OJ in the intro. Anywho, uh, folks who dialed in, we can get to all of the uh, folks who dialed in with a question. Don't wait till the last minute. If you have a question, hands up early. Just it helps me, among other things, it helps me organize the program. People have their hand up early as opposed to waiting until I'm ready to let the guests leave and then three or four people put their hand up like, come on, man, waiting until the last two hours, especially if you called in late, like, oh, man, do not call in like 30 seconds before, you know, the top of the second hour or whatever. Like, oh, man, I need to get my Come on. Come on. Come on. Or if you do, maybe we get to you. Maybe we don't. Uh, folks have commentary they want to share uh, before we get ready to wrap up. Greetings, everyone. Retired firefighter in Florida. Guest, I believe, was down in your part of the world, South Florida. Yeah, I, I thought I heard her say something about Miami. I wasn't sure on which Miami uh, she was uh, referring to uh, because she didn't give any uh, connections uh, about South Florida in general, you know, with names or anything like that. Uh, but I, I wasn't I wasn't real eager to uh, to ask a question. I was more or less just uh, kind of like paying attention indirectly. But uh, I uh, was going to uh, if I did uh, was chosen to uh, ask a question. I was going to ask her uh, since this issue, this this articulation that she was bringing up about uh, when she was asked about her racial classification. I was going to ask uh, on whether or not uh, uh, her parent or parents or guardian, uh, when they were writing in her uh, racial classification at, you know, for some reason, what did they put? What did they put down? Uh, I was just thinking about Rachel Dolezal <laughs> at the time. Uh, I was just wondering on what she would have said, what would, what would have been her answer uh, to to that. Uh, and also, uh, the second question uh, I was going to ask, uh, being that in these lucrative uh sports entertainment businesses, uh, whereas the head football coach, especially in Miami, in all large cities, is equivalent to the mayor, at least the mayor of that city. Uh, in other words, if that person 
is invited or goes to a school, everybody in the school would, would, would stop what they're doing to be entertained by this person who's the head football coach of the Miami Dolphins. Uh, I keep, I'm lately hearing the terms by the NFL, especially after this, uh, this lawsuit, terms like people of color, minority, uh, what's another one? Uh, 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 it's, a, it's a few more. Uh, and, uh, I was gonna, I was gonna ask her, uh, uh, are they, and the person they selected, this person they selected as the head football coach, like her, uh, is, uh, uh, well, I didn't hear him identify himself as such, but they're identifying him as something called biracial, whatever that means exactly. Uh, and, uh, I just wanted to get her comments from that, uh, being that if she was, did stay in Miami, she would probably know something about this, this, this recent issue. And what would her thoughts be on, on, on this? Uh, mind you now, when they're looking for the gladiators, the gladiator level, most of these guys look like they're from the Congo. <laughs> they're so, they're so melanated. Uh, uh, but, uh, when it comes to, when it comes to any other, uh, profiting, uh, uh, employment, uh, that person is a white person or fill in these, these different, uh, confusing terms like, uh, like, uh, bi- biracial, uh, or, uh, uh, people, person of color, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, that, that's, that's one of, that's the, the refinement period of racism, white permit. Just wanted to know her thoughts on that. And that, that's it. Thank you. Oh yeah, one more thing. Uh, 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 I'm going to start calling you Gus X if you're going to be uh, writing uh, all of these uh, uh, notations to uh, Seattle's uh, libraries. <laughs> That's it. Thank you. Much obliged, uh, retired firefighter in Florida. Uh, effort to you know counter racism small things that you can do sometimes just asking questions that's a little bit that you can do um yes sir keep it up keep it up yes sir do what you can that's what they say do what you can um yeah the racial classification confusion is a big one i put a picture of the guest up on the um social media, Facebook and all that. So, uh, people can, if you haven't, or, you know, you can do the search and all that to see what the guest looks like. Uh, but I thought that was really important. Um, like when I saw, uh, I think Z's mom, she mentioned the book we're reading lucky and all that. And so I went, uh, saw the book and all that. I didn't see the professor until like way down the road. I think I got the, I think it was when I got the book. That was when I got the book, hard copy, flipped it over. And they had a color picture of her on the back. And I looked, I was like, Whoa, Whoa. She looks like past exact the word she said she could pass as white. She looks exactly like, whoa. Now, sometimes, like I think I've heard Mr. Fuller say, depending on like the lighting or if you see somebody when they have their summer color, people that remember Crystal Tyler, 
maybe they look a little darker. Now, if you look online and see some of the other photos, she looks, how would I say, a little more Asian. Uh, she looks like she, I don't know, maybe got a tan or maybe the lighting was different. She looks maybe a little darker, not super dark, but just a little bit. And then you see some of the features phenotypically like, eh. Yeah, the way I try to gauge it is like, so man in the high castle. So if race soldiers came in, said, if you don't have a white person with you right now, give you a pass, you're going to die. I'm not going to her for my past. Like they might kill both of us. I'm going to get somebody else. I don't, I don't know if you're going to stand up uh, to, you know, test enough for it because it's serious that would be the way i would adjudicate it although i super appreciated her saying that for racists they will manipulate to their advantage sometimes we'll accept her as white sometimes nah get over there it's not to our advantage you're you with the negras that is remembering who does the deciding about who is classified as white who is not Let's see. Other folks, uh, commentary to share 10 minutes before we wrap things up. Can I be heard? Tapello, yes, sir. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm, I must be muting myself and turning it on and off. I've got this new phone. Sorry about that, guy. Trying to deal with that and this technology and call you on to the show and get on late and as you know uh, have problems trying to get in and out and I was hearing the lady speak and uh, I was getting confused on some things so I have to listen to the, to the podcast again and, but she kept saying the Tito's or the Tito's <clears throat> and I just wanted to ask if everyone is getting mistreated and at the bottom of that ladder are known as black people, then then what was the difference between the Latino and a black person? And I just want to hear what she would, would say uh, from her uh, point of view. But I, I came in late, so I wasn't sure what you said about anything prior to that, obviously. So um, I just listened to the commentary mostly. And uh, I'm not sure if she really even answered questions by some of the callers when it came down to what a feminist is worth to black people as a, you know, the people that are the most to be mistreated. I'm, I'm trying to understand what would be the goal of a black woman wanting to be a feminist in such a system. If she is a black person will be mistreated regardless if she's a woman. I haven't found out that advantage yet. 
Um, at least I haven't heard it. I haven't heard it explained logically. And then I heard her say she she would classify. Um, oh, uh, um, the writer from or the the newspaper lady from Memphis. Um, name escapes my mind right now. Uh, classify her as a feminist. Uh, Somebody help me with the name. Uh, Ida B. Wells? Ida B. Wells. Mrs. Ida B. Wells as a feminist. And I'm thinking to myself, I would never classify her as a feminist. I thought that was I think it's an insult to tell you the truth. <clears throat> I would, that would, I, I, I also wouldn't classify Sojourner the Truth as a feminist uh, after she was scorned by the white women who were feminists uh, <clears throat> and led to believe she was part of the clique and well, she held her skepticism, and uh, I don't think she was surprised at how she was treated afterward uh, <clears throat> by the white women. So, I doesn't neither of these women I would consider a feminist, and I would re- really be interested in what writings or speeches that they gave. That would lead one to believe that they were feminist. <clears throat> but I am limited in my education. And uh and also she gave me confusion when she said she feels like she's not white or Yeah, I think she said that, right? That she's not white, she feels that she's not white or or that she was white. But but I, I heard her say that and I was really confused uh by that statement. So she she gave me a lot of confusion. I have to re- listen to her again. <clears throat> and the show again to the callers questions because I missed a lot of things. Uh that that's it. Uh greetings everyone. Greetings Gus. Love you uh, having fun out there in Seattle with your uh, encounters with the librarians. I I also used to live out there and I know exactly <laughs> what you're dealing with. Uh but lead on sir you're doing a good job uh, with the show, with the uh, program, and um, I'm glad you're still on. Uh, uh, someone else, you get on in. Can I be heard? Yes. Oh, uh, greetings again. Um, Thank you for, you know, taking my call and thank you for having the guest on. A long-time listener. I think this may have been my first or second time calling in. Um I uh two things. 
Um, first, I have been to the uh, Seattle Public Library, I believe, in downtown. Um, I, I kind of did a little project. Um, I was in the, I'm originally from California, but I was in Seattle at the time. Tried to get the code book in there because I heard you can, you know, go to any kind of library, request it, and, then, and they'll get it. Um, so I, I, I had two attempts. The uh, first attempt, uh, I will admit, I did lie. I did say I was living in the area, but I don't live in the area. I did have an address, but I just didn't live in the area. So, I, you know, my second attempt, I saw my error, uh, and I said this time I'm not going to uh, lie or give incorrect information. I went, spoke with some of the uh, non-white workers. Um, just, you know, what, what options do I have of getting this? But I, I, I visit often. I'm trying to get the book in the, into the library. What, what are my options? You know, um, they were helpful, but, you know, very limited information. Spoke to two different uh, non-white workers, employees, uh, black male, and then a, uh, a, a non-white female. I got directed to a white female. I guess she's a, a, an actual librarian. And she was very resistant to getting the book. She, you know, um, they told me the book wasn't available in the library. She looked it up, and I, and as soon as she did that, uh, I knew she, you know, it was just resistance. At one point, she tried to take my information down um, to record it, and I thought that that was very strange because it, it, it seems like I should take your information down, right, to see if it'll follow up on it. I don't know why you need my information. Uh, I asked her that, and, you know, I can't remember the response she gave me at the time, but it was definitely wasn't – it didn't justify taking my information down. Um, so all in all, uh did not get the book in there, and I severely – I think they will not have the book in there. Um, on a different note, following the uh, program tonight, I found it very um, interesting – for her response of whether or not non-white people should uh, participate in feminism, even after all of the research she's done and the a massive amount of mistreatment and abuse non-white people have uh, received due to so-called feminism, he still believes that non-white people should be uh, should participate in it. So I found that to be very interesting. Um, I guess she is non-white, so I don't want to criticize her too much i guess um, but i thought i thought that, that was very interesting um other than that uh, i don't i don't really have anything else um just a suggestion um for maybe an, a different guest i don't know if this is the correct time to do that or not but um a uh dr david ansel author of the death gap um very um interesting work uh, definitely practicing racism, white supremacy. Um, but that, that's all I have for tonight. Thank you for taking my call. Much obliged. We will uh, check that out. Reading more important than watching television. Uh, I reckon if I had anything to say, we've been on the air so long. So interesting. She says she's so-called biracial. We missed the program. We were supposed to be on air last Tuesday. We were supposed to have Sarah Donahue, who talks about also being so-called 
biracial. Uh, she was not on the program, didn't, you know, respond, didn't hear back from her. We had some tech issues as well. Uh, like she called in for the program but got disconnected. Uh, she didn't exactly call back in with haste, uh, like there wasn't a sense of urgency uh, on her part, but she also identifies as biracial. Anyway, for years, I have said, hey, it's significant. If this person is classified as non-white, victim of white supremacy, that's logic. However, if they have a white parent, that has an enormous impact on their thought, speech, action, as it would for anyone. Your parent, I mean, hey, birth, all of that. But you have a white parent, that is going to impact how you think about white people. Even once with all that information about racism, white supremacy, and especially if you are pale enough that you can be accepted as white, like, oh, man, that's going to have a huge impact. That's why I was really glad to get all that information out in detail. And I think she said that in getting all of this information, it impacted her. She was talking about being a feminist. All of the ideology of white women, really the thinking of white women and how they view the world. So it does not surprise me at all. Uh, like I said for myself, I cannot untangle the two. Uh, feminism is just racism, white supremacy from the perspective of white women. It is all about Carolyn Bryant Donald. She was mentioned, uh, the white woman who uh, lied, Wolf Whistle, Emmett Till, all of that, who is still alive, not pr prosecuted as a murderer. That right there, white feminism, just different generations, different refinements of the same behavior. Anywho, um, that is our three hours. We'll call it a broadcast there. Uh, we will be here at minimum on Thursday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific for the book club. The Man in the High Castle. Uh, much obliged to Z's mom uh, for the suggestion. Uh, if you didn't hang out with us for Lucky, Alice Seabold, oh, wow. It's everything, everything about this. And that book, a part of women's studies programs and the Me Too and all the rest of it. And, oh, my gosh, the oppression and sexism and all the rest of it. Mm-hmm. Usual, she said the religion of white supremacy. She said talking about these angelic, deified white women, just like Ramona Lofton, Sapphire, just like she said in the poem Wild Thing, army of sin, talking about the black males. And then the image I mentioned, Greenwood Seattle Public Library, where they can get books from everywhere. I've gotten books uh, from all, I got books from California delivered never had a problem i'm not surprised they couldn't get the code books but oh yeah misogyny that's the problem that's what we got to deal with yes misogyny mm. and case yes cowbell anywho much obliged for folks participating hope it was worthy of your monday evening sobriety would be best that's a big theme in uh aya gruber's book so much of the campus rate people being under the influence. She talks about that over and over and how, wow, a lot of these white women, if they were really concerned, especially about the college rates, like, man, you all should be the ones. Sobriety would be best. Like, let's do something about all this underage drinking and narcotics consumption. Like, hey, 
let's be front and center about that. That doesn't seem to be the case. That would have a huge impact. That's at least one thing non-white parents can do, like talk to your offspring, sobriety, all these Me Too and colleges and Title IX, alcohol. In addition to being sober, if you're out and about, you see someone being rowdy, hostile, exit, you should be thinking that they could be armed. If you didn't leave your residence prepared to kill and or die, exit. They may have an entire armed entourage ready to kill the no-count toxic raping black male. Uh, If you're in a vehicle, you're sober, buckled, not on the phone, doing the small things we can to minimize contact with the race soldiers, badge or no. All of that said, Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, no brother. Problem. You're a victim. Right. I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Ah.